Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How you guys doing this morning? Early Monday? Well, Back I'm on okay. The, the Cowboys lost, so I mean, I'm starting. It's a very slow morning for me, uh-huh. but Cowboys. we played, we played <laughs> a lost. very good game against a very good team, the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. So Monday is here. So basically, a rough day for you because Cowboys took an L. But we played a good game, so I'm happy. As long as we play a good game, I'm always happy. All right, so there's an asterisk yes. in the rule book. Yes. They played a good game a despite the loss. There is a but. What about you, Reese? You're buried over there in... in- Unfortunately. <laughs> I, well, I got this hoodie as a gift, and so I'm enjoying the warmth of it yes. because the temperatures have dropped in D.C. But uh, fortunately, my happiness is not tethered to a sports team. It's more so the fact that I got to go to uh, all of my favorite stores this weekend to do grocery shopping. So, oh, you got to get some groceries. Yeah, and, so and, that was exciting. I think when you get older, stuff like buying towels that are a certain and sheets that are a certain thread count just become your joy. Oh, my God, I got a new things. trash can. I mean, it's it's the little things. Basically, shopping therapy. Exactly. Shopping therapy. Retail therapy. Retail, that's the word for it. <laughs> um, you guys had a debate over the weekend. We, we did. We did. How did it go? I asked how it went, and somebody's voice went up an octave when, when I mentioned it. So I don't know what, what took place. And no. we'll, we'll go to the headlines after, but real quick, what was the... I, I Actually, it was it was better than what I expected it to be. Um, it wasn't terrible. I mean, it was, you know, it was organized by a conservative, so it leaned uh-huh. conservative. Can... But um, it wasn't terrible. We were able to actually talk about some things I thought we could have done a bit more with you know, talking about actual policy. It was yep. a culture debate. Right. That's what it was. It was a cultural debate. Okay. So, left versus right. What about you? I contractually can't disparage the uh, event. Oh, I don't want you to disparage the no, event. I'm just like, how did you do it? I'm telling you that contractually I can't. Uh, oh, okay. Fair in enough. In a disparaging way. But I, what I can say is that um, it's more and more uh, aware, and I won't disparage the event per se, but there are, what I'm realizing is just how low and depraved some people will sink in order to get their 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, I see. How they are literally trying to build a career if they want Fox News to pick them up or just what, just any type uh-huh. of attention that they can use for sound bites. It's a reality and these people are depraved, but the problem is, is that it hurts the culture at large. Fair enough. And it makes all the sense in the world. So... Let's go to headlines. In some domestic yes. news, <laughs> top of the morning headlines. Just 33% of Americans would vote to re-elect resident Joe, I'm sorry, President Joe Biden if the presidential election were held today. A poll of 1,200 registered voters conducted for Fox News by Beacon Research and Shaw and Company Research has found. More about the poll. 33% of Americans told pollsters that they would vote to re-elect the incumbent, while 54% said they would pick somebody else. They have to go with somebody else. Biden's showing is the lowest among any of the past three presidents, with Donald Trump hitting a 35% re-elect rating low point in January 2018. Not even during covid 
was Donald Trump's numbers this low. Barack Obama suffered a re-elect low of 39% in September 2010 before rebounding and defeating his Republican rival Mitt Romney in 2012. 71% of self-described Democrats said they would re-elect Biden, while just 19% said they would vote for someone else in among Republicans. Shouldn't be any surprise, 91% said they would pick someone else with 4% saying they would stick with Biden. I'm interested in knowing who that 4% is. Independents proved to be the most uncertain with 13% saying they would re-elect Biden and 54% picking someone else. Another 23% said it was just too soon to say at this point. Ithaca, moving on to New York, Ithaca College in New York has been slammed for segregating staff by racial affinity groups, having them meet on different days throughout a specific year-long course? The Anti-Racism Institute is an optional weekly event taking place at the college during the 2022-23 academic year. Faculty, faculty and staff members are given the option to attend Monday sessions for faculty and staff who identify as people of color or Thursday sessions for faculty and staff who identify as white. This is according to Fox News Digital. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has temporarily lifted restrictions on seaborne supplies of liquefied natural gas to its Caribbean island of Puerto Rico as part of a recovery efforts for from Hurricane Fiona, which resulted in severe power outages, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas said on Monday, quoting, In support of the Puerto Rican people as they continue to recover from Hurricane Fiona, I have approved a temporary and targeted Jones Act waiver to address the unique and urgent need for liquefied natural gas in Puerto Rico. According to the Jones Act, all maritime cargo supplies between U.S. ports must be delivered by vessels flying the U.S. flag. The Homeland Security can grant a waiver if particular transportation is in the interests of U.S. national defense, as is now the case with Puerto Rico, the authority said. U.S. billionaire and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates said he would not rule out a meeting with the Taliban? If it helps Afghanistan eradicate poliomyelitis. <laughs> Did I get that one right? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know if there's some sensitivity around that. I would do pretty much anything to help the polio campaign. It is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's top priority. Gates told the British newspaper, The Telegraph. The billionaire also said that the foundation's partners had already met with the Taliban in Qatar and added he was pleased that the movement did not sack the previous health minister who said he was quite capable. In Bernie news, Vermont Senator, Independent Senator Bernie Sanders said the Federal Reserve's attempts to rein in inflation are hurting the economy more than they are helping. Hmm. I think they're hurting the situation. This is according to Brent, um, Bernie Sanders on yesterday's NBC's Meet the Press. 
I think it's wrong to be saying the way we deal with inflation is by lowering wages and increasing unemployment. That is not what we should be doing. Sanders also noted that he would not increase interest rates further. Sanders is sounding a little conservative here. Stockton police say they have made an arrest in connection to six murders in California. On Saturday, Stockton Police Chief Stanley McFadden, City Manager Harry Black, and Mayor Kel- Kevin Lincoln announced in a joint press conference that they had arrested 43-year-old Wesley Brownlee at around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, quoting, Our surveillance team followed this person while he was driving. We watched his patterns and determined early this morning he was on a mission to kill. He was out hunting, McFadden said. And international news. European Union foreign ministers are expected to give the green light to a mission to train around 15,000 Ukrainian troops at their meeting in Luxembourg on Monday. Media reports. We must continue to help Ukraine. The most important matters are the new tranche of age, a- aid to Ukraine and the training missions. I hope everyone approves. This is according to EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell. This is what he told reporters upon his arrival in Luxembourg. Basic training for this program is initially to be provided to 12,000 soldiers with specialized instruction to 2,800 more. In more international news, the Swedish parliament has approved moderates. Party leader, Oh, Yulf, Christensen as its new prime minister as head of a three-party coalition. Christensen's candidacy was supported by 170 lawmakers, 173 voted against as broadcast by the parliament's website. Christensen, the narrow victor at a general election on September 11, had stated on Friday that he had secured a deal to form a three-party government between his moderate party, the Christian Democrats, and the liberals supported in parliament by their key ally, the Sweden Democrats. And talking about France, France would probably be at war with Russia if Joseph Borrell was in charge of the national foreign and security of the nation's foreign and security policy. National rally Marine Le Pen has said, quoting, I believe that we must hold to the tools of diplomacy. Because when I hear of the statements of the head of the EU diplomacy, Joseph Borrell, if he made decisions for us, I think we would already have entered the war. The French opposition leader said, according to BFM TV on Sunday, Lupin cautioned against crossing the line of assistance to Ukraine and becoming a direct participant in the conflict between Moscow and Kiev. The French people don't want this. I don't want this. Be careful not to take a step too big, which would take us into war. In more international news, the delivery of advanced Israeli weapon systems to Ukraine would destroy interstate ties between Moscow and Tel Aviv, Russian Security Council Deputy Chairman Dmitry Medvedev has warned. Israel seems to be planning to send weapons to the Kiev regime. This is a very reckless move. It will destroy all interstate relations between our nations. The Russian Security Council deputy chair wrote in a Telegram post on Monday, I won't even mention that 
the Banderite degenerates were and remain Nazis. It's enough to take a look at their, the symbols used by their modern day henchmen. If they are supplied with weapon, it will be time for Israel to declare Stepan, Bandera, and Roman Shukovich, their heroes. He added, referring to the Ukrainian World War II era ultra-naturalists whose OUN, UPA insurgent force collaborated with the Nazis and slaughtered tens of thousands of Poles, Jews, Russians, and pro-Soviet Ukrainians in the areas of Western Ukraine under their control between 1943 and 1944. And in more international news, new chancellor of the the new chancellor of the executor, Jerry Hunt, is the de facto prime minister. So says a backbench Tory MP, quoting, "There's real power in Downing Street, but it's not in number ten. It's in the number eleven." Sir Roger Gale told Sky News presenter Kay Burley on Monday. These comments came hours before Hunt's press conference to announce more tax and spending changes. The veteran North Thanette MP said, All the shots were now being called by the chancellor who trusts appointed on Friday in a bid to survive a crisis of confidence in her month-old leadership. And on this day in history, 1854, French and British forces bombard Sevastopol for the first time during the Crimean War. In 1907, Guglielmo Marconi's company begins the first commercial transatlantic wireless services between the Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, Canada, Clifton, and Ireland. And in 1973, OPEC oil ministers use oil as an economic weapon in the Arab-Israeli war, mandating a cut in exports and recommending an embargo against unfriendly states. These are your headlines for this Monday, October 17th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on. So let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as the notes mention, <laughs> Liz Truss might be on her way out. This is a fascinating story, and I love this story. All things been equal, when I was in the UK, I was covering the Queen, not the Queen, I'm sorry, the changeover of power from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss. Now, there have been all sorts of political intrigue in the UK. Doesn't mean the Prime Minister basically goes. I would argue that part of the reason that Boris Johnson um, was fired from his job as Prime Minister, that he didn't want to leave, by the way. I mean, you can listen to those speeches. It was a man regretting um, the fact that he was being taken out like a, on a rail. I'll be back. I'll be Well, no, he didn't say he'll be back. He was complaining the fact that he was leaving and that they were basically kicking him out. So Bush Johnson 
on his way out. Now, my point that I'm making here is I would make the case that a lot of issues associated with Boris Johnson was not paying attention to the British government. I mean, you had inflation going through the roof. The amount people were paying were going through the roof. They didn't believe the government was paying attention, in which case his focus was on Ukraine, part and parcel to the reason they were having the issues in the first place. Meaning he was out of touch. He was out to lunch. Boris Johnson, out. Liz Truss takes power. She goes to the queen. The queen drops dead immediately as if the queen knows exactly what is going to befall Britain with Liz Truss taking power. And exactly what the queen thought took place. And yes, yeah, so being a bit hyperbolic when I said the queen knew all of this was going to happen. But her death was somewhat of a statement of storm clouds gathering over the UK. Liz Truss takes power. And keep in mind, she didn't take power with the full support of the country itself voting her in. That's not how this worked. You had one Tory government that basically collapsed. Another Tory government comes into play. It is only Tories that are putting her in power. And knowing this, she ran with it. Basically, she didn't say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to have the British public. But her thing was growth, growth, growth. And what that meant? Tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. And so grotesque were these that they only comparable to something that took place like in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, the point, or the 70s, one of those. But like 50 years prior, where the previous government did something similar and had to rescind the policies because the policies had such a negative effect on the British economy. Trust, undaunted by this full of hubris, despite the fact that the public didn't necessarily vote for her, comes in and pushes forth a mini budget. And the mini budget was going to cut the amount that they were going to have to pay for taxes, meaning the top rate. And the amount, the pittance that they were going to give back to the people at the lower end of the economic scale that was going to drastically grow, depending upon the amount of money that you had in your bank account. As Quartain, Chancellor of the Exchequer, under the trust government, gave the speech, the pound collapsed. The pound collapsed multiple points. For one, you already have a huge amount of debt that you got to service. Two, <clears throat> you're trying to help people because of the policies that your government has taken in coordination with the United States and the West that have dramatically increased inflation, the amount they're paying for food, and of course, the amount they're paying for energy. And so your government was trying to find a way to give some of the public the money back, meaning you're taking debt to pay for policies that you've taken in Ukraine. So there's that point. On the second point, though, you're also have just alerted the people with your mini budget, with Kratang talking, that you are going to take debt on, additional debt, in order to give the rich more money under this idea that this is going to somehow produce growth. At the exact same time that you're talking about giving all of these people that much more additional money, you have this weird situation where the Bank of England is trying to constrain the money supply and it's trying to do the exact opposite. Now, this creates a run on pensions, which... The Bank of England has to come out with more quantitative easing in order to just make sure the pensions don't collapse. But the government is basically acting in complete repudiation of what the Bank of England is trying to do. Now, there's all sorts of ideas of political machinations going on in the Bank of England. Them saying, hey, we're not going to continue quantitative easing. You need to figure that out. In which case, again, the pound drops. Everybody freaks out. And there's this expectation of a potential Lehman Brothers types collapse all throughout the UK. Maybe. When Liz Truss came in and put in that mini budget, I remember listening to the forecasts with people who used to be part of the Bank of England saying, I expect the pound to collapse within the next six months. Didn't have to wait six months. You <laughs> expected the pound to collapse almost immediately. It is hard to get across how screwed up a government has to be for your currency to basically collapse on every word of the chancellor exchequer as he gives this speech about the mini budget. Okay. Quartang gets called back to the UK. It's that bad. The chancellor of the exchequer has to cut his trip short. I believe he was in the US. Gets called back. 
and he gets fired. He gets fired. Now, this is basically feels like Nixon firing the underlings in order to give themselves more time for later. He gets fired. But understand what he gets fired for. He gets fired for pushing through Liz Truss' budget and her idea of what she wants the UK to be regarding taxes. And in any case, cutting them, making sure that the wealth gets that much more wealth with the poor continuing to be poor. Firing Quartang doesn't do it. Doesn't do it. And you get apparently all of these messages back and forth among Tories who are basically saying her time is up. One makes the point of saying, right here, I'm known. I've never known the atmosphere to be as febrile as it is at the moment, one veteran Tory MP who backed trust in the leadership contest said. Another MP who supported her said, it feels like the end, I think, should be gone next week. Tory MPs casting around wildly for mechanisms to outlist trust or to replace her. While the party rules make it complicated, rules can be changed, and trust's removal is fast becoming the question of not when, but if. Her only strength at this moment, insiders say, is that there is no obvious successor. This is political. It's not some random rag. Just political. Basically making a point to saying the Tories behind the scenes are talking about mechanisms to get rid of her because of what she has basically done to the pound. The pound utterly collapsed. And that collapse doesn't necessarily seem to be changing. And despite the fact she's trying to make a somewhat of a U-turn on this, I suppose, it doesn't kind of get to the point that she was the one that basically initiated all this. Yes, Boris Johnson was bad, but the pound didn't necessarily collapse on the open word of Boris Johnson as it did with trust. So the catch becomes now what? If the bank is indeed stopping quantitative easing, if Liz Truss is continuing to keep her job, is Liz Truss going to continue to push in this particular direction? Meaning even if you get rid of the mini budget, even if you try to mitigate the mini budget, are conservatives, are Tories, okay with Liz Truss remaining in power, considering Liz Truss is probably still going to try to do what Liz Truss needs to do in order to get some provisions of that mini budget through. Meaning, just because she may have pulled back on one sense doesn't necessarily mean the thrust of her particular administration and what that administration wants is stopped. And I guess therein lies the rub. What is she going to do? Here's another line. Tory WhatsApp groups descended into open warfare. One MP messaged colleagues urging him to, quote, show backbone, unquote, and claimed that the maelstrom has been an invention of the press. A colleague responded saying they were living in a fantasy world. You're watching the pound collapse. I mean, you are literally watching it collapse. And your response is, oh, we just need to be stronger about it and we are giving in to the press. It's like, dude, we're not giving in to the press. We're literally watching our currency plummet and plummet to the point where it's near even with the dollar, which is something I've never seen before and never thought I would see. Um, I'll put it to you this way, and I'll bring you to it. If this was in the U.S., if this was happening in the United States, if the president sent out, I don't know, Jerome Powell, and Jerome Powell made a speech where the dollar basically plummeted, what would happen? Meaning, with the other members of the party, do you think, and I actually believe you're the Republican on stat, if the Republican Party had a candidate who came in and made fiscal policy where the dollar literally plummeted, like, as he gave a speech, as Jerome Powell gave a speech, the dollar got less and less and less against the other currencies. What would happen? And when you have other t- conservatives basically saying this guy needs to go, yes. Many, you would have them saying they need to go. So do you think the same thing would happen here as it did there? No. Now, 
the, the, they would stay. Now, are you meaning once they become president? Once they become president, yeah. you, you, get- you will have, because there is always a fight in the conservatives, fiscal, you know, the fiscal conservatives versus the not so fiscal conservatives. Come on. It doesn't exist. That's what I was about everybody to say. spins. Yeah. You know, so that's what I'm saying. Every it's, conservative it's a that's coming. fight. But every conservative that's coming in office has spent more money. Yeah. And you can even compare including it to the Democrat. Trump. Yes, including Trump. That spent- grotesque budget. Yeah. Everybody does it. Everyone says that they rail against spending and all of this type of stuff. But whenever they get in office, all of them, to a person, you may have a small contingent mm-hmm. who consider themselves fixed. They'll vote against anything that raises it. Right. But the Rand Paul type. how do you think we got to a $30 trillion debt? It's not because people are saying, stop the spending. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. And look, Republicans say that stuff all the time, but Trump and Bush spent more than the Democrats that were in office. Yeah. Full stop. And I think every subsequent president will. Yeah. I don't think we're, because we're addicted to spending. I don't yeah, think but every, they can't work in perpetuity. I mean, we're at $31 trillion in debt. Yeah. That has to stop at some point. Why can't it? We print money. I know, but $100 trillion. $100 trillion. Can you imagine what that means? Who's yeah. going to stop us? Well, I would say fiscal law. Our dollars are backed by and the think, guarantee of the Ah, but that doesn't have to always be. That's not an act of God. But I, I think we can saying, have a moment. I think and we can have another um, Occupy Wall Street moment. Right. I do think that before we fall off the cliff, I think we can have another one of those Occupy Wall Street moments. But those moments have to be apolitical and not just the left is out protesting or the right is out protesting. Yeah. We are actually in agreement on a lot of these things when it comes to spending, especially yes. now that we're talking about Ukraine. Um, we're much closer together than we give ourselves credit for, and especially in the media. Yeah. But I think it will probably take one of the, you know how they're uh, marching in the streets? Yes. In Europe and other, we're going to have to do that. But again, it's going to have to be around our um, government, our economy, economics. It can't yeah. just be, you know, as I often say around race, we have to get to the street to say, hey, this is, we've, enough is enough. Will it happen? Mm. That's the rub. <laughs> $31 trillion yeah. in debt. And there's like, I point that out because there's nothing to show for it. Right. Part of Britain's issue has to do with you guys are taking on debt just to give the rich a tax cut. Mm-hmm. I mean, this wasn't even like, okay, we're going to do this for the poor. It, it wasn't that. Yes, you're going to take on taxes or debt in order to for the public itself. I mean, from the standpoint of energy costs, okay, fair enough. But now you're just adding in more debt just for a tax cut. That's what your government wants to do? She was like, yes, that's exactly what our government wants to do. In which case, people were like, you're taking out so much debt, you're going to have to pay more to service that debt for the first point. And from the standpoint of quantitative easing, there's even talk that the Bank of England did that on purpose with the idea of trying to collapse the government. That the Bank of England coming out and said, hey, we're not going to do quantitative easing anymore. We know exactly what that means for the pensions. I mean, those pensions are going to basically collapse. Figure it out. Didn't, which didn't case, you the tell us that the, um, I think because I, I think you've mentioned it a couple of times, how the market immediately responded, like in real time? Immediately, real time, every time. I mean, even the article coming out of, um, what is this, Politico, they talk about how as he was talking, the market just dropped. I mean, you can see it, you can see the map, it goes down as Quartang is talking. Wow. Amazing, amazing stuff. I've never seen anything like it. Um, I guess my thing is, if it's us, and let's say, Let's say it's not the UK for a moment because their political system is slightly different because they can get rid of Liz Truss much easier than you can get rid of president. I mean, maybe if the dollar collapses, you can get Republicans and Democrats saying, okay, this president needs to be impeached. They're going beyond the pale. They're hurting the currency. Maybe like that. But in the UK, it's a little different. I mean, they can basically they can get rid of her. 
if they need to. They can even mm-hmm. change the rules to get rid of her if they need to. It's just another Tory coming back into power, though. Like, it's not this thing where they come out for this kind of mass vote. The people who are voting when you have this kind of election type thing. She has two years. Then she can be in office before anybody gets rid of her. And so, yes. If so they're only two years? Yes. Okay. They're about two. Well, no, 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 no. It's two years for the next election. Gotcha. Because this was basically a leadership challenge to Boris Johnson. Boris they got Johnson. rid of Boris Johnson. And they did the same thing with Theresa May. It was Boris Johnson who got rid of Theresa May. Boris Johnson, though, realized he was much stronger, in which case he called, we need a general election. He wanted that election because Boris Johnson knew he was going to beat the stuff out of Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Liz Truss is not going to beat the stuff out of anybody. She is dramatically unpopular. And in that sense, she's not calling for an election anytime soon. So at the earliest, we have two years before yes. an, an actual election. An election. By the same token, though, they can take her out if they need to take didn't her out. They, didn't, the how many, didn't they give her 90 days? Who gave her 90? Somebody gave her. Well, this I is only been something. The Tory MPs or something? This has been, well, initially the report came out that she's going to get 17 days of fix 17, it or something like that. 17 days. And then within a couple of days, the report came out. They want her out now. They want her out now. Ahead Some of, of the them. 17 days. We, we don't even want you to have that anymore. This cap came over the weekend, like a few days ago. It was like, okay, now they want her to leave. They want her to leave. And the catch becomes, okay, even if you get somebody else in, what is a person going to do different? I guess they wouldn't necessarily do the tax cut thing and seeing what happened to her. But this is kind of Tory modus operandi. This is what they believe in. Tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. Well, that's if, why the Labor Party is setting up to get themselves in the seat. I know, but the Labor Party is trash. I mean, the Labor Party in the UK is basically the, um, what is the name? Um, no, what is his name? What is his name? Tory, uh, Tony Blair. He's, it's basically a Tony Blair party. Whereas with Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn put you in the mind of a Sanders-type party. He was a full-blown leftist in the leftist sense, in the, the stuff that he was pushed for. He was even a Brexiteer, because at one point, lefties were against the whole Brexit stuff. I mean, it was against the um, European Union stuff, meaning being a part of it in the way it was. Um, which made it that much weirder that Jeremy Corbyn couldn't necessarily speak his piece about the whole Brexit stuff. But I guess my point is, Keir Starmer is just a Tony Blairite. And so the Labour Party... Like they called it new labor. They didn't even want to call themselves labor. Um, you had this thing where Tony Blair-esque type of people are going to go back into power. Tony Blair was a guy who was perfectly okay with the war in Iraq. I mean, Keir Starmer is not a lefty in any sense. It's not that he did anything magical. I don't. Th- it's, it's hard to get across how horrible and how bad he was regarded. The only difference is now he's up against trust. Mm. It's that. So it's like, okay, we're just going to sit here. We don't have to say anything. She is that miserable. So it's going to make us look that much better. Meaning Starmer's only chance of getting in power is that trust government got in power. Wow. It's, they don't, look, this is not a good situation to Britain's in, at least not by my assessment. I like Jeremy Corbyn. I thought the public loved that guy. And part of the reason that they loved him is because he was a legitimate labor. He was a true believer. It's like if you put Sanders in that office saying, you may hate him, you may hate some of the policies, but at the end of the day, he's a true believer in what he believes in. That was Jeremy Corbyn. Here's mm. Starmer. It's just whatever he needs to be for the moment. And in this very particular situation, he is loving the fact that trust is in power because it makes him that, that much better. But look, let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Malik Abdul, Reese Everson. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jerome Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging 
what all of us are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us at by phone at 202-521-1320. We'll be taking your calls at 915. Your engagement helps make sure what it is. Don't be shy. But I want to get to our guests. We have the one and only Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a cartoonist and political analyst. Ted, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? I'm good, Jamal. Looking forward to the week. How are you doing? So far, so good. What do you say? You're looking forward to the week. A lot of people don't say that, Ted. <laughs> but fair <laughs> enough. I appreciate the optimism. Um, before I move on into the political stuff taking place in the U.S., I want to get your take on the British thing. Have you ever? And I'm bringing you into this because your political knowledge is expansive and all around the world. So you would definitely have a take on what happened prior. But have you ever seen anything like this, where a prime minister gets in and within what, six weeks? I don't even know if it's been six weeks. Five and a half. Five and a half weeks? Now they're trying to get her out of office with the pound just basically falling through the floor. It's astonishing. I've never seen anything like it. Is there any historical reference on this that you can give us? Uh, you'd have to be looking at Italy uh, in the 70s when, uh, and in the 80s when the country was wildly dysfunctional and having new, they were flipping new uh, parliamentary regimes every few months or every few weeks, um, it's, you know, the country was pretty much kind of in a state of, of collapse, but, you know, the food's good and the wine's good, so nobody really cared. Uh, you know, that's not so true in England. Um, the, you know, I mean, it's crazy. This, Liz is the uh, sixth uh, prime minister in, sorry, the fifth prime minister in six years. Yep. Uh, and, and she, I mean, that, that is just extraordinary. So, no, it's kind of unprecedented in modern history. Uh, this is wild dysfunction, and it's all the same. It's all the Tories, right? I mean, they, yeah. they just can't get their own thing together. So, uh, you know, England used to be almost Swiss in terms of its staid, boring flips of power. Uh, you know, that's just not true anymore. Uh, you know, who knows what's happening to them? Yeah, it's it's astonishing to watch. I mean, and when you talk to the people in the country itself, they didn't necessarily have this belief that Liz Truss was going to be a savior or do anything different. They thought it was going to get that much more um, calamitous. And they were right, by the way. They were right. I mean, all things being equal, it's unclear what is going to happen in the UK at this point. And this is one of those things we're going to keep watching. But let's jump to the U.S. And one of the things that I wanted to speak to you about, Biden turning the Trump era rule to expel Venezuelan migrants. This is astonishing. Now, we've had um, Susan Pye to give us an explanation of this in the, let's say, the literal sense, the legal sense of the word. And Susan Pye continuously made the point of saying, look, regardless of what Biden is saying, even with the fighting court, he is laying down on purpose, meaning he is using Title 42 himself, despite the fact of proclaiming and denouncing Donald Trump. About it. Apparently, the media now took notice. Right here. Biden last week invoked a Trump era rule known as Title 42, which Biden's own Justice Department is fighting in court to deny Venezuelans freeing their crisis torn country um, for chance for asylum at the border. The rule, first invoked by Trump in 2020, uses emergency public health authority to allow the United States to keep migrants from seeking asylum at the border based on the need to help the prevent spread of COVID. Under the Biden administration's new policy, Venezuelans who walk or swim across America's southern border will be expelled, and any Venezuelan who illegally enters Mexico or Panama will be ineligible to come to the United States. <clears throat> but as many as 24,000 Venezuelans will be accepted at U.S. airports, similar to Ukrainians being admitted since the Russian invasion in February. So basically, Trump used this air, a 22 rule of, this allows us to get rid of migrants, prevent them from seeking asylum. Okay, Biden says that is immoral, 
That is egregious. I can't believe you're doing that. America is America. We are supposed to allow, you know, bring us your tired, poor, and huddled masses. Biden gets in office. Immigration becomes a big issue. He makes Kamala Harris the czar of immigration. She doesn't do anything on it. Invisible. And now his thing is, okay, got to do something about immigration because the numbers are astonishing. We have governors sending people to various states like Martha Villar. We don't necessarily like that. And so he decides to use the same rule that Trump was using that he basically reviled. This looks horrible. Oh, what, give us your take on this. This looks horrible. This looks horrible. Uh, well, I agree with all that. It's also probably really, uh, first of all, it's, it's incredibly ineffective. I think this is really a ploy for the midterms where uh, it's an attempt to uh, sort of staunch some of the bleeding on immigration as a major policy that's right. driving uh, Republican voters and is trying to suck some of the wind out of the sails of the Republicans. Look, this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, and Republicans who are inclined, I mean, voters who are inclined to, to vote Republican are not going to look at this move and suddenly say, oh, Biden's suddenly strong on border policy. It's not going to change a single voter's mind either way. Uh, and, you know, it's the, 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 the justification COVID is really crazy. I mean, you know, whatever you think of this particular rule that, that Trump was using, he was doing it in the middle of, uh, of the top, the peak pandemic, right? right? We're not there now. I mean, Biden himself it's said over. that the pandemic is over. And, uh, and now <laughs> that COVID is now becoming endemic, not pandemic. So therefore, you know, there's no, there's no emergency that he can claim, really. And I would, and I would think if there was a court challenge, that's probably where lawyers would start. So it just seems like, you know, flailing, political flailing. Yeah, but I mean, COVID, we had a million cases of COVID in the United States. I mean, that wasn't the same case everywhere else. Meaning they're trying to use rules saying, hey, we can't take the chance of COVID um, being brought into the country while we have a million cases of COVID. Meaning it doesn't even make sense on his face. Like even from the standpoint of, of Biden using this rule, it doesn't seem that anybody has asked the administration, well, sir, there were a million cases of COVID in the U.S. We were the world's focal point of this. How are you making a rule deporting people for the chance of bringing COVID into the country? And to your point, Ted, at this point, Biden basically says that COVID is over. I mean, is he going to get hit for this? I mean, for example, yes, he's fighting in court about this. But again, we've had people on make the point of saying he's kind of fighting in court. All things being equal, he's trying to use it while also seemingly to try to be against it. Is that something that's going to work politically, especially getting hit from the left? from people who are basically bringing up the fact that this was a law, a policy that you reviled at one point, and now all of a sudden you're on board for it. You know, one of the rules of politics is when you try to play things both ways, uh, it never works. And there's a variety of reasons why. I mean, sometimes the voters figure it out, but I think more commonly the messaging is so muddled uh, and that you can't really, uh, you know, communicate in a way that the media can understand it. And, uh, in, and sort of, so it just, you know, the, basically you can't turn it into a bumper sticker. So it kind of ends up having no effect at all. Mm. Uh, my general feel is I don't think this is going to, this issue will move any needles whatsoever because fundamentally, uh, you know, people don't, you know, these are, people don't really care about them. I mean, the voters don't really care about these Venezuelan migrants and, uh, you know, it's, 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 even that includes, you know, people, uh, you know, liberal Democrats. I mean, yes, progressives are agitated, uh, but, you know, they're, they're not going to be enthusiastic Democratic voters anyway. Let me switch to the economy for a moment. Um, Joe Biden, in a recent speech, basically, he was talking to Tapper, and he basically made the point of Tapper to say a recession is not necessarily um, on the marquee. I don't necessarily know if we'll have one, or if we do, it'd be tippet. And then Jake Tapper jumps in, oh, oh, so, so you do agree, sir, that there's a possibility for it. 
It's as if Jake Tapper didn't look at anything else. So right here, Wall Street Journal, economists now expect a recession, job losses by next year. Even CNN is coming out pointing out that they're expecting hundreds of thousands of job losses by next year, especially with the Fed tightening. <clears throat> How does the media let him get away with this? That's the first point. But on the second point, what does that do to the administration where you're having hundreds of thousands of jobs going up in smoke? And will people associate that to Joe Biden's policies? Meaning, will they accept as a basis of operation that Ukraine matters so much that we need to lose this many jobs? Because regardless of what's the cause of all of this, they're going to associate it with Joe Biden's policies on a geopolitical scale because they know that what he is doing has something to do with the oil and gas supply. And as such, something to do with inflation, meaning are they going to attribute and attach this to the president? Uh, yeah, no, I think this is a, basically a cinder block tied to a chain to Joe Biden's uh, leg. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but, it, but it gets tied on. It gets tied on next year, yeah. right? After November. Um, you know, the look, it's the combination of the Fed uh, hiking up interest rates, in my opinion, way too far, too, way too high, way too fast. They've already tanked the housing market you uh, think so? effectively. What well, real quick? Yeah, the, the housing market is already drying up, and then combine that with the oil shock. You know, that's going to be that's already in progress. Um, you know, and OP, you know OPEC and uh, you know the, the boycott of Russian oil. I mean, this is going to be uh, it's going to be bad, and it's a completely self-inflicted wound. Voters are voters would blame Biden and the Democrats for this recession even if they had done everything right and they did everything wrong. Right. So they're going to be blamed. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, this is, it's going to be pretty catastrophic. And don't forget, you know, Republicans will be running the House of Representatives. So they're going to have the ability to, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to be able to lean on this very weak, very lame duck president. Uh, and again, he's not, I've said it before, he's not running. Okay, he's not Oh, you don't think he's, he's running, running again? Well, no way. So impossible. Even, even he if he can't. takes the house, he just can't. Even if Democrats continue to hold the house, do you think he's running? Well, I mean, okay, that's like saying uh, even if you know if if I sprout wings and I fly <laughs> to Lower Manhattan today, <laughs> yes, lower. I can. Um, but uh, sure, uh, no. And even if like okay, it's, the chances of the of Democrats taking the house are, are like one percent. But let's just say that happened. I still think he can't run. He just can't look. He can't speak. He can't campaign. He can't make public appearances. He can't speak straight. I mean, you know, talking is kind of a basic requirement for a politician, especially <laughs> the president of the United States. Uh, he's going to be 82 years old when he runs for re-election. He turns 80 this month. And sorry, next month. I mean, there's just no way he's this guy. He's way past his his expiration date. She's um, there's dead? there's Tell no me how way. You really feel? <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Hey, Ted, um, thanks for joining us. It's, it's Malik here. Now, I operate under the assumption that, well, reality, that neither side is great when it comes to immigration. Um, people talk about wanting to fix the border on both sides, and it typically doesn't happen. We know that there's a lot of hypocrisy. You um, talked about a number of that, but we know that even if we're talking about a border wall, well, Democrats supported border walls when Barack Obama was in office because they authorized hundreds of miles of border walls, and they began construction um, during the um, Obama administration. When Trump got in office, obviously, borders became a racist thing, and border walls became a racist thing. But even now, with this Title 42, and you did mention the hypocrisy of this, and just where people should know, Title 42 is a public health authority. It is totally related to public health. And so, yes, it is hypocritical for Biden to call for that the pandemic has ended and he's using this authority. But I will say one of the difference 
differences between the policy um, with during the Trump administration and even now under the Biden administration is that it actually speaks to the challenges that the U.S. government has with Venezuela because even under Title 42 during Trump and I believe even up until now, it, Mexico would only agree to accept the migrants expelled under Title 42 if they were from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, in addition to Mexico. So Venezuelans were never on that list. And so to your point about this is not going to do anything, we already were not, um, like the Venezuelans, we were not um, deporting or sending back many Venezuelans at all. And I don't think that that's going to change much because Venezuela hasn't agreed to accept them back. So where do they go? If the country refuses to accept them and if Mexico says they're not on our list and we're not going to accept them, then where do they go? So it ends up, I do agree with you, it ends up being a bit more performative because the Venezuelans that he's announcing, they have really nowhere to go. Where do you think that, what do you think about that? Are they going anywhere? If Venezuela doesn't agree to um, accept them back, where are we sending them? I mean, Malik, that's a great question. I mean, look, it, you can't effectively have this massive population become stateless in uh, Central America and and South America. Uh, the Venez- I mean, at some point, uh, you know, the the fact that the United States is pressuring Venezuela with these uh, brutal sanctions that is, uh, you know, really contributing to this economic crisis that is causing this problem uh, is, is going to start to come out. You know, just the other day, I was really surprised to hear, I forget which mainstream uh, broadcast outlet it was, but they actually mentioned, the, maybe it was NPR, uh, that, the, that the sanctions were, having, uh, were playing a big role here. That's something you don't normally hear. You normally you just hear, like, uh, the incompetency of President Maduro, and, and that's what's going on here. Um, you know, I, I think this would be a, a place where the Venezuelan government, if they're canny, would be able to say, look, you want us to take our citizens back uh, you know, we need layoff on the sanctions. Uh, I think there would be, there's some international sympathy there. This might be a play at the UN or something. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, you, it, it is, I mean, the, 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 the Biden administration policy is sickening though, because it violates American law. I mean, these people aren't sneaking across the Rio Grande. They're presenting themselves uh, at border checkpoints, they're they're seeking out border and, and you know and customs enforcement officers and saying hello. We'd like to apply for asylum. That's legal. That's a legal U.S. process. That is what they're supposed to do. They're following the rules. And so when people are following the rules and you're still kicking them out, that's disgusting. Thousand percent agree with you. Thousand percent agree with you. But yeah, go for it. You know, and, and I was going to say, and and it's un, it's actually unfortunate because you raised a very good point. But it's unfortunate if you know it kind of um, takes us back to 2020, and it's also what part of the criticism that I had of Donald Trump during that time, where we were all over the place, and Donald Trump was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing when it came to his personal response to COVID. But COVID contributed to a lot to where we are today because many of these things, when you listen to Democrats, you know, rail against using Title 42, they interpret that as, um, you know, it's being racist saying that, you know, the you know, South Americans and Mexicans are bringing over disease and things like that. But it was a serious crisis that we were dealing with. And nobody knew. Nobody knew how far reaching it would be. We are in a much different place now. But I also have to criticize the media's role in this because, as you will see even from this announcement, 
um, the media is going to respond to this differently, even when they were talking, I think it was probably back in May when there was discussion about even ending Title 42. Um, you know, a lot of Democrats were, you know, saying that it was time for it to end. But what I would like to see from the media, I don't think it's going to happen. What I would like to see from the media is some real criticism of what the Biden, what the Democratic Party, for one, because this was seen as a Republicans hate, you know, immigrants coming here and Trump, they hate all, all, you know, everybody. But what I would like to see is the media be more critical of Biden's use of this particular public health authority in the context of a pandemic that they say is no longer here. So I think, uh, do you think that the media will be more critical of the Biden administration? I think we'll know in the next day or two if it's going to happen. I agree with you, Malik. It's, it doesn't seem likely, but I think it's not, you know, it's, it's not as unlikely as, as Biden running for re-election. I mean, it could, it <laughs> well, could happen. Can I ask you a question, Ted? Will Biden run for re-election? <laughs> <laughs> I think according to Ted, Biden won't even be walking during yeah, the election. Yeah. <laughs> like, tell me how you really feel. It's like, that guy is, is like a 90-year-old man. He can barely walk and well, What was the, have we, what's the oldest person in office we've ever had? Was it Ronald Reagan? It was Reagan. Reagan. Yeah. So he, Reagan, served yeah, Reagan in office, but not term. elected because mm-hmm. he's he, you know, he got old when yeah. he was in office, but As he, he wasn't old. the youngest. He wasn't the oldest elected. He ended up being the oldest. Yeah, serving serve. president. Serve. What about um, Strom Thurmond? How old was he? I think he was like 90 something, right? Because you said in office. Just a senator. Yeah, oh, I know. Yeah, Congress is a graveyard. I know, but you made, you weren't, you weren't saying. You're no, just saying I, I office presidential in general. Office, oh, presidential office. Yeah, because okay. Congress is a graveyard. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Thurman was like in the 90s there. or something. And the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, to... you go there to die, basically. You stay yeah. there for 80 years and then die on William Rehnquist. <laughs> well, um, what's her name? The, she, the one that they had cancer recently. The, the one that. Uh, um, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah. yeah. It's like. Down your post. You should have asked her to leave. Die. The funny thing about that is that, you know, they wanted her to stay throughout the Trump administration to save the Supreme yes, Court. I get that. And she ended I'm up talking dying. about when Obama was in office. Yeah. She they clearly had issues. They couldn't get rid of her. Look, look, William Rehnquist, who was a Republican, I believe he was the form, um, he was one of the um, chief justice, mm-hmm. um, chief justice. He essentially died in, in, in the, um, in the seat. Yeah, because by the time that he ultimately died, he was wheelchair bound. Yeah. Like he couldn't walk. He couldn't. I mean, in this guy, I think what Rehnquist, wasn't he over? He was like 90. I don't remember his age. He was like, but, but really he basically old. died on the bench. Yeah. Jeez. Ted, so Biden is not going to die on the bench from your assessment. Ted, is, you know, he's not I'm even going to run. I'll say there's a drastic <laughs> difference. Well, I, I would say there's a drastic difference between the demand of a president, First someone Supreme in the Court. executive, Agreed. and a Supreme Court, or even a Congress member, oh, unless you're like the member from California and you're flying yeah. every week. I mean, that that can be a little crazy. I mean, the demands on a president are far more extreme, right? Yeah. I mean, if anything happens at three in the morning, you need the guy to be alert. You need the guy to be able to give a speech where he's not saying stuff that People have to walk lucid. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to got to be there. And so, Ted. Oh, to your point, um, Rehnquist died at 80. Oh, it was. It was oh, he was just 80? Oh, wow. Well, he must have looked rough older. at 80. No, I know. <laughs> Malik had this memory of this guy being like 100 years old. Um, so, Ted, for the economic thing for a moment, how do presidents typically try to get out of a negative economy when they're running for office? So, right here, as I'm reading this, it says 49% predicted a recession in Wall Street Journal. This was back in July. Um, and let's say, 
this latest poll marks the first time since July 2020 that the majority has said a recession. Now, they are basically saying right here, the Postal Survey, 66 economists days before the Labor Department released new inflation data showing the consumer price index, a weighted market basis on household basically goes up 0.4%. But they're now getting a majority saying there will be um, a recession. And you can even make the argument, are we currently in a recession? And because it seems like they tried to change the definition of what a recession was about the two markdowns in order to make Biden look a little bit better than what he was. Either way, if you have hundreds of thousands of jobs being lost, like you said, they're going to look to the president itself. Is Joe Biden going to be a senator for Democrats? Meaning they're going to tell him, look, Joe, you can't run. Cognitive, physical, and yeah, the majority of the party don't want you to run. So there's that. But the thought is, well, Joe Biden was the one that presided over all of this negative economic damage. He was the one that had this policy on Ukraine with another Democrat coming into play saying, well, look, I'm different somehow. That stuff was Biden's. Meaning, does the senator tactic work to give Joe Biden all of the failings and, and everything else saying he was an old guy? We tried him. It didn't work. He you know, screwed up in Afghanistan. He created the war in Ukraine. He created the issues associated or going back to North Korea with Kim Jong-un. Are they going to does that even work, though? Can you make that argument that this is all belonging to Joe Biden and whatever new random Democrat that's running in the next, what, 2024 is going to be different? Uh, you are going to have to have a Democrat that has radically different policies, someone who's anti-Ukraine war, uh, someone who uh, wants to stimulate the economy rather than uh, drive it into a ditch, which the Fed is doing uh, with the Democrats' seeming approval. That's what I wanted to get with you on. Doesn't Jerome Powell have to do something about inflation? I mean, like, I get, I totally get it. He doesn't have to do anything on inflation. No, he, does, he doesn't, because uh, I think, and a lot of economists uh, think this is true, that uh, this, this inflation would peter out by itself. It's kind of an analogous situation to World War I. At the end of World War I, uh, there was a lot of pent-up consumer demand, mm -hmm. and inflation raged from 19... Also, there was a pandemic that came to an end, Spanish right? Flu. Spanish yeah. flu. Um, and so suddenly people were back from the war, uh, you know, and they were spending money and they were, and they were, um, and they were coming out of lockdown. So they started spending a ton of money. Sounds familiar, right? And that drove up prices and wages, but the fed, there was no, the, there was a proto fed, but they didn't do much. And what happened was after about two years, uh, the inflation, you know, the, the people bought everything they intended to buy and inflation came back down for a soft landing and it led to the Roaring Twenties because there was no central authority to get in the way. I think the Fed overreacted. I, I think, you know, with the supply chain stuff starting to work itself out, uh, you know, inflation would have eventually, uh, would have come down sooner rather than later uh, without Fed intervention. And I think, uh, you know, coupled with the OPEC, uh, you know, uh -huh. reduction of, of production, uh, you know, it's going to be a double whammy. Uh, the Fed, this is an unforced error. I mean, the Fed can reduce interest rates next year as uh, the new reality becomes clear, but it's going to be a little too late for uh, all the ec lost economic activity over the last, you know, the what will then have been the last previous six to 12 to 18 months leading into a national presidential election. I, I think it's, uh, it, it's pretty bad. I mean, you, but yeah, see, it's over. It's overkill. I mean, and I also think that one more thing too. I just wanted to say about about you know your your point about like well, can a different kind of pres uh, Democrat uh, you know take over from blame you know, Biden for everything? Despised, Biden's fault from despised <laughs> right. from despised Democratic policies. And the answer is kind of no. Look at Jerry Ford. He was a different kind of Republican from Richard Nixon. It, you know, Watergate certainly wasn't his fault, but the voters 
still in the end did not, you know, sort of reelect him in 1976 because they, they were still mad about Watergate. Basically, they nailed it on the party, not necessarily on the individual candidate themselves. Oh, that's interesting. I guess I don't know about the Fed thing, man. Like, all things been equal, you're getting food and gas or food and energy going through the roof, meaning they don't even include that in the inflation numbers. And the Federal Reserve comes out and says, okay, we got to do some of the inflation. So some of it is based on pent-up demand, agreed. Some of it is based on the supply chain, agreed. And some of it is based on, well, there's a war in Ukraine that is driving up energy costs because the West has taken policy that is basically dramatically increasing the cost of fuel. And by the way, that's only going to get worse with the stupid price cap idea. That's assuming they even go through with it. Um, and so the fact that Jerome Powell is basically confronting these kind of unknown economic realities. On some level, doesn't he have to do something? Like, it, it, I have a hard time seeing the Fed sitting there while inflation in Europe and the United States just go bananas, and they just don't do anything. Like, I just feel like he has to do something. Well, the problem is that the Fed is, is reacting to yesterday's news, right? Right. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not able to turn on a dime and, uh, you know, and, and, and vote for these interest rate cuts, that, uh, increases that would then have immediate re- results. They're reacting to the state of the economy three or six or even nine months ago. Uh, and, you know, it's just obviously things have changed and are changing. Um, you know, I think right now, if you're Chairman Powell, you're looking at OPEC and you're like, oh, God, what did we do? But see, Jerome Powell has said once before that he has no power over OPEC, meaning, meaning he has no power over the war in Ukraine, which is scary when you think about it. Because what that means is the Fed is increasing rates in order to deal with inflation. And a lot of that inflation is responding or coming from something that he has no power over at all. Meaning Western policy at this point, yeah, we're gonna uh, we're gonna make them pay us. You know, we're gonna take the money supply from Russia, meaning the amount of reserves that they had um, here. And then they say, okay, well, we're not gonna pay him for things. So Russia says you're gonna pay us some rubles. Meaning in all of these situations, Jerome Powell has no control over any of this. And yet, all of those things are inflationary in regards to costs here in the states. It's the worst of both worlds. I guess that's my thought. Somebody is gonna get blamed for that. And I suspect you're right that it's going to be Biden. Ted? You're already seeing the polls. And you're also seeing the polls, uh, you know, support for the Ukraine, uh, you know, U.S. assistance to Ukraine are, are dropping precipitously, uh, not just on the right. I mean, you know, Democrats are starting to, uh, you're seeing those numbers fall. By next, by next year, people are going to be like, Ukraine who? Yeah, right, right. Ted, always appreciate your commentary, man. We'll see what happens on the economy, on the economic front. We'll see. The Voice, you are listening to is Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoons at Rawl.com. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Always appreciate talking to Ted Raw. I don't know if Ted is right on that point, though. Like... We've had people on, like Mark Frost basically said the economy is going to be in recession. He's betting against the dollar in some respects. And he even made the point of saying um, not just recession, the inflation stuff isn't going anywhere. He's been talking about it for like, like a year. And the entire time he's been saying inflation is going to get worse, inflation is going to get worse. The Biden administration, oh, this is transient. This is transient. It's been transient for like over a year, which after a while you'll be like, okay. At what point is it not transient anymore? <laughs> just just there. What is it? Um, over 
is it two quarters, the inflation? Right. It's supposed to be in two quarters at that point. They considered a recession. Right. right. And then they tried to change the definition. Exactly. They tried to change the definition of that. Exactly. Well, not exactly. If you look at this number, no. This is what we've always yes, used. This exactly. is the, we're not making a new standard. Right. This is the same standard that we've always used. And, and media? They went they went with it. Oh, maybe it's different now. Maybe inflation is different now. Maybe it's not true. But that's just it. It's not just Jamie Diamond. What, 60 66 oh, percent at this point? Yeah. Every economist that they were talking about basically said, Yeah, a recession is coming around the cliff. And this is what Biden is basically saying. No, it doesn't have to and be. And that is apolitical. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like it, but these are conservative. Correct. No. It was just across economists the across the board. What do you think? We think there's going to be a recession. 66-something percent. <laughs> and, you know, Biden's like, well, maybe not. It's going to be like inflation. It's just transient. Okay. Okay, Joe Biden. Here's your applesauce. All right. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go to headlines. In the news. Just 33% of Americans will vote to re-elect President Joe Biden if the presidential election was held today. A poll of 1,206 registered voters conducted by Fox News, by Beacon Research and Shaw and Company Research has found. 33% of Americans told posters that they would vote to re-elect incumbent, while 54% said they would pick someone else. Biden's showing is the lowest among any of the past three presidents, with Donald Trump hitting a 35% re-elect rating low point in January 2018. And Barack Obama is suffering a re-elect low point of 39% in September 2010 before rebounding and defeating his Republican rival Mitt Romney in 2012. 71% of self-described Democrats say they would re-elect Joe Biden, while 19% say they would vote for someone else. Among Republicans, 91% said they would pick someone else, while 4% saying they would stick with Biden. Stop calling yourself a Republican if you stick with Biden under these terms. Biden um, independents proved to be more uncertain, with 13% saying they would re-elect Joe Biden, 54% picking someone else, among with 23% that said it was too soon at this point. Man, if you're in a situation where 4% of Republicans will still vote for Biden under these conditions, don't call they're yourself a Republican. Republican. <laughs> yeah, you're not a Republican at that point. I don't know why you think you are. Uh, but it you're must not be Republicans. About Michael Steele. <laughs> yeah, right. That must be the Steels or, or the other guy. I can't think of the um, the other ones that are part of the that, that duel Lincoln that came Project. together. That's it, yeah. Lincoln Project. Here's the thing. Obama in that campaign was did something that was actually pretty amazing. And then you rarely can you say accolades about Obama. He basically went after several districts. It was like Ohio, it was the swing states mm-hmm. or battleground states. And he dumped all of his money in those states early on, castigating or Framing Mitt Romney as rich, out of touch, etc. Romney comes out and says, "What is it? A useless eater comment or something like that?" Mm-hmm. Where he's like, "Oh, 49 percent of the country, yeah, that's it. Are useless eaters?" Which yeah. means in those battleground states, that framing of Romney came into more fruition based mm-hmm. on Romney himself. Yeah. And they said, "Obama's right." Now this was a risk because Obama put so much money into the battleground states, and it worked, worked magnificently. So it's just fascinating politics. That's all. Um, he had a he had ability to do it in a way that Biden doesn't. Ithaca College in New York has been slammed for segregating staff by racial affinity groups. What? Having them meet on different days throughout the specific year-long course. The Anti-Racism Institute is an optional week event taking place in the college during 2022-2023 academic year. Faculty and staff members are given the option to attend Monday sessions or, quote, faculty and staff who identify as people of color, unquote, or Thursday sessions for, quote, faculty and staff who identify as white, unquote, according to Fox News Digital. God, this is (laughs) ridiculous. This is ridiculous. I identify as a billionaire. Yeah, identify as somebody who is, it's not about you, how do you identify? You're grown people. You guys are, 
Serenity now. We'll talk about it after. That, yeah. That's yeah. aggravating and to read. And then the rest of the headline news. <laughs> yeah, that's aggravating to read. That's very aggravating to read. We need to... So you're going back to the 60s? You're going back to segregation? So, well, maybe segregation got it right. Segregation let's, let's do and employment at that. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? Why do you think this is a good idea? So you believe that the 60s were perfectly fine. We believe in segregation. We don't want these black people here. We don't want these white people. So we're just going to separate these people, even though they work in the same place. And supposedly we accept them as having the same mental faculty, capability, and everything else. This is nonsense. Nonsense. Let's keep going. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has temporarily lifted restrictions on seaborne supplies of liquefied natural gas to its Caribbean island of Puerto Rico as part of recovery efforts from Hurricane Fiona, which resulted in severe power outages. U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Alejandro Mayorkas said on Monday, quote, in support of Puerto Rican people and as they continue to recover from Hurricane Fiona, have approved a temporary and targeted Jones Act waiver to address the unique an urgent need for liquefied natural gas in Puerto Rico, unquote, Mallorca said in a statement. According to the Jones Act, all maritime cargo supplies between the U.S. ports must be delivered by vessels flying the U.S. flag. The Homeland Security can grant a waiver if particular transportation is in interest of the U.S. national defense, as is now in the case of Puerto Rico, authority said. U.S. billionaire and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates said he would not rule out meeting with Taliban if they, if help if it helps Afghanistan eradicate polymyelitis. Quote, honestly, I don't know if there's some sensitivity around that. I would do pretty much anything to help portfolio or polio campaign. It's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's top priority, unquote, Gates told the British newspaper, The Telegraph, reported. The billionaire said that the foundation's partners had already met with the Taliban in Qatar and added he was pleased with the movement, did not sack the previous health minister, who he said was quite capable. All right. Bill Gates is willing to meet with the Taliban. Fair enough. Vermont's independent Senator Bernie Sanders said the Federal Reserve's attempts to rein in inflation are hurting the economy more than helping. Quote, I think they're hurting the situation, unquote, Sanders said on NBC's Meet the Press. Quote, I think it is wrong to be saying that the way we deal with inflation is by lowering wages as increasing employment. That is not what we should be doing. Unquote. Sanders also noted that he would not increase interest rates further. Now, Sanders is not entirely wrong here. Oftentimes, what gets understated is that when the Fed is going through rate hikes, what they're doing is trying to constrain the money supply, which also by definition means restraining jobs. Meaning, the rate cuts or the rate increases are going to have an effect on the notion of employment. That's kind of part and parcel to what it is. Sanders is making a point of saying, look, we're hurting employment in this country. And then now they're counting, what, 175,000 jobs are supposed to drop or go by the wayside. Sanders' point is, there's a better way to do this. Increasing rates can't be our only bullet in this gun. Let's keep going. Stockton police said they've made an arrest in connection with six murderers in California. On Saturday, Stockton Police Chief Stanley McFadden, City Manager Harry Black, and Mayor Kevin Lincoln announced in a joint press conference they had arrested 43-year-old Wesley Brownlee at 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. Quote, as the village team followed this person while he was driving, we watched his patterns and determined early morning that he was on a mission to kill. He was out hunting, unquote, McFadden said. Interesting. Let's keep going. In international news, European Union foreign ministers are expected to give the green light to a mission to train around 15,000 Ukrainian troops at their meeting in Luxembourg on Monday, media reported. Quote, we must continue to help Ukraine. The most important matters are the new tranche of aid to Ukraine and the training mission. I hope everyone approves, unquote. The European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, told reporters upon arriving in Luxembourg. Basic training is initially to be provided to 12,000 soldiers with specialized instruction to 2,800 more, 
according to the reports. Let's keep going. Swedish parliament has approved moderate, moderate's party leader, Ulf Christensen, as a new prime minister as head of the three-party coalition. Christensen's candidacy was supported by 176 lawmakers, 173 voted against, as broadcasted by parliament's website. Ulf Christensen, the narrow victor at the general election September 11th, has stated on Friday that he had secured a deal to form the three-party government between the moderate party, the Christian Democrats, and the liberals, supported in parliament by their key ally, the Sweden Democrats. France would probably be at war with Russia if Joseph Borrell was in charge of the nation's foreign and security policy. National rally Marine Le Pen said, yeah, that's probably true. Quote, I believe that we must hold the tools of diplomacy because when I hear the statements from the head of the European diplomacy, Joseph Borrell, if he made the decisions for us, I think he would have already entered the war. Unquote. The French opposition leader said, speaking to BFM TV on Sunday, Le Pen cautioned against crossing the line of assistance to Ukraine and becoming a direct participant in the conflict direct between Moscow and Kiev. Quote, the French people don't want this. I don't want this, unquote, she stressed. Quote, be careful not to take too big of a step, which would take us to war, unquote. Just think, the right-wing candidates, whether you're talking about in the U.S. or in Europe, have taken on this policy of their country first. Meaning, you guys have made certain decisions that have put us in a predicament that we can't get out of. There is no magical door. And that France matters first, or for that matter, the U.S. matters first, which creates a certain skepticism about the war. Except you being in Italy, where the person who took charge is basically still for the war. I guess I'm making the point that that position is not necessarily wrong. And that position, I would argue, if given an opportunity, has legs. Le Pen is just toxic, however. If that was made by somebody else, maybe. But let's keep going. The delivery of advanced Israeli weapon systems to Ukraine would destroy interstate ties between Moscow and Tel Aviv, Russian Security Council Chairman Dmitry Medvedev has warned. Quote, Israel seems to be planning to send weapons to Kiev regime. This is a very reckless move. It would destroy all interest relations between our nations. Unquote. Medvedev wrote in a telegram post on Monday. Quote, I won't even mention that the Banderite degenerates were and remain Nazis. It's enough to take a look at their symbols used by their modern-day henchmen. If they are supplied with weapons, it would be a time for Israel to declare Stefan Bandera and Roman... I don't know how to pronounce this one. Shuchifche. They're heroes, unquote. He added, referring to the Ukrainian World War II-era ultranationalists whose OUN slash UPA insurgent force collaborated with the Nazis and slaughtered tens of thousands of Poles, Jews, Russians, and pro-Soviet Ukrainians in the areas of Western Ukraine under control between 1943 and 1944. Look, whether it's Germany sending weapons or whether it's Israel sending weapons, deplorable, put it mildly. And he's right. You do have insignias. You have, um, uh, what's his name, John McCain standing on, I believe, the Washington Post with I'm a Nazi. I mean, it's amazing that they've been able to whitewash this stuff. There's all sorts of reports that makes it very clear about the number of Nazis or these guys who support these kind of Nazi insignias and everything else. The fact that they've been able to whitewash this is astonishing. The fact that a German government, or for that matter, Israeli government, will back it is even that much more so, that much more astonishing. But yeah, Amendeveth, if I'm wrong with that. Let's keep going. New Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, is now the de facto Prime Minister, says the backbench Tory MP. Quote, there's real power in Downing Street, but it's not in number 10, it's in number 11. Unquote. Sir Roger Gale told Sky News presenter Kay Burley on Monday morning. The comments came hours before Hunt's press conference to announce more tax and spending changes. The veteran North Thanet MP said, quote, all the shots were now being called by the Chancellor 
who Truss appointed on Friday in a bid to survive a crisis of confidence in her month old leadership. So sad. So ridiculous. But basically, Liz Truss fired the Chancellor of the Stecker, Quartang, for a budget that she herself pushed and wanted. That's great. In 1854, French-British forces bombarded Sevastopol for the first time during the Crimean War. In 1907, uh, Gilgamo Marcini's company begins the first commercial transatlantic wireless service between Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, Canada, and Clifton, Ireland. In 1973, OPEC oil ministers used oil as an economic weapon in the Arab-Israeli war, mandating a cut in exports and extending or recommending an embargo against unfriendly states. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. All right. Yeah, I love this idea of firing the underling in order to save yourself. That is as American as apple pie. Apparently, that is as British as, as, you know, I guess, banger and chips. Brits being Brit. Yeah, Brits being Brit. Do you know, I, I wish we could oh, actually have, <laughs> um, hopefully we're able and our producers are listening, we're able to get Ted to come back. Yeah. Because I really would like to get some clarity on whether or not he thinks Joe Biden should run for president. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) He seemed unclear on that point, right? Yeah, he seemed totally unclear on that point. Well, let's do that. I don't think Ted thinks you'll be able to wheel Joe Biden. (laughs) Yeah, I can feel like he's, yeah, he's thinking they're going to have him in a chair or something as they wheel him to the presidency trying to run again. Look, he may be right. And I, the senator idea makes sense to me. Like, it's this notion of, okay. Let's just say Joe Biden was responsible for all of these failings. Afghanistan being a failing. COVID being a failing. Um, the Ukraine stuff being a failing. The inflation being a failing. The lying about the inflation not being an issue or being transient. Yeah, let's just say Joe Biden did it all. And big. But the catch is, would the person who comes in repudiate what Joe Biden has done? And I don't no. buy the premise. No, they can't. Yeah, I don't buy the premise. Yeah, they can't. Yeah. But look, let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. We'll be back with Elijah Mangay talking about the events in the UK astonishing as they are. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and Reese and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 9.15. But look, well, let's start off. We have our guest, Elijah Mangier. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. Elijah, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? We are great. Better that you are with us. And we got to jump into the U.K., I love British politics. I've loved British politics for years. And I used to cover it, um, prime minister's questions and all that stuff that used to take place. I've never seen anything like this. Um, Liz Truss takes power from Boris Johnson and immediately comes out with this tax cut idea that is immediately, let's say, it is immediately against what the Bank of England is basically doing. Meaning they're trying to constrain the money supply and she basically wants to give tax cuts to the rich. This mini budget, as it's being expressed by Chancellor of the Exchequer, if you have side to side with basically what is taking place with the pound, the pound is going through the floor. 
as Quarantang is basically dis- disclosing this mini budget. Liz Truss, eventually under all of this magnificent pressure, fires Quarantang in order to save herself, in which case they bring in Jeremy Hunt. What is going on in the UK right now? All of this is taking place. And now they're saying that they want to get rid of Liz Truss. And she's only had the job for like five weeks. Give us an understanding of what is happening in the UK and why it's happening. What's happening is that Prime Minister Liz Truss' government is setting a record of being in office for around 40 days and having the shortest serving uh, time in ever in almost uh, two centuries. So the biggest problem here is that tr- the trust has lost trust of the population. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, in her performance and uh, in all the decisions that she has taken, for that she has fired her finance minister after less than a month and a half because of the revision of the tax uh, cut and because she has changed her policy, thinking that she can bring the country to the level that was before February 24th. And yet, trust is still holding the flag in front of all NATO countries and even ahead of the U.S., by wanting to impose more sanctions on Russia, challenge Russia, go to AUKUS with Australia and challenge China, and thinking of considering even China as an enemy uh, and start taking measures against China. So opening multiple fronts when your economy is sinking, when the pound is losing its value, when people have no longer trust in less trust and in the performance of the government, no longer the inflation is hitting a record. It is really unwise to keep a person like Liz Trust as a prime minister. So I think this is why we see the conservative country, uh, party is thinking seriously of uh, pulling the trust out of the prime minister and asking her to step down. That's why she's calling upon Jeremy Hunt as a quoting successor to try and save her, which I don't think is going to happen because we have the increase of taxes, we have the increase of loan, we are printing more money in the UK, we're struggling with all the minerals that we're not getting from Russia, we're struggling because of Brexit, we need more foreign uh, power uh, to come into the country to help us we can't deliver the uh, uh, oil into supermarkets and to stations. We are struggling on so many fronts in the UK that is not working. And all that, the, there is one title for list trust to repeat, all that because of the Russian war on Ukraine, which doesn't make any sense. You know, what's wild about this is they're basically saying her getting rid of um, Quartang is not enough that she's lost confidence. And you even have some MPs that are making an argument of that this is less about party politics and more about the country itself. Basically, that she is destroying the conservative brand um, in such a way that would do damage to it for the foreseeable future, in which case they're saying she needs to leave. I mean, is there anything she can do to keep herself in power at this point? Or have the ter- Tories really, at this point, have thought to themselves, she needs to go, period? Well, she can't convince her own MPs to support her. 
when her own MPs are incapable of finding a reason to keep her in power, then she doesn't have anybody to rely upon. It's, she's, it's over. It's just a question of finding a suitable candidate. Otherwise, the Conservative, conservative Party is going to lose tremendously, particularly after the disaster of Boris Johnson and the UK wrong political decisions. Well, it says they're talking about Penny Mordaunt and Rishi Sunak. Now, Rishi Sunak was the one who was running against her in the first place. Does this, I guess, um, group ticket, as they're calling it, or joint ticket, does this have any legs? Right here, it says, um, quote, Rishi and Penny got over two-thirds of the parliamentary party between them and a final MP's ballot. Unquote, one Tory rebel organizer said, quote, you have a critical mass already backing them. Unquote. Here's another one. In a message leaked to Politico, Crispin Blunt told colleagues in a Tory backbench WhatsApp group on Friday, quote, enough. Emergency repairs needed for our party and our country. Step forward, Rishi and Penny, without support and encouragement in the interests of all. Unquote. What would need to take place for her to be taken down at this point? There was talk, certain talk that said that they would have to change the rules in order to bring on somebody else. For one, is it a potential? And B, what about these two? Is it a potential for these two to basically take over? Well, we don't know yet because um, it's it, any any decision to boost the economy again is failing. For example, I'll give you an example where List Trust is seriously struggling with the Bank of England. So raising the interest rate will thinking she is thinking that this is can stop the inflation. However, this is not going to stop the inflation because the pound is sinking lower uh, against the U.S. dollar for, since 1985. So any decision that is, that is going to be taken is going either to sink the pound further or to increase the cost on the individual, on the British individual. And that's going to be unacceptable for any leaders in the UK to face because people will not have enough money to buy their goods. And this is not something that only the UK is facing. Germany is facing, facing that. France is confronted with the same problem. Belgium is also suffering from it. When people are in the streets starting to pick up more strength, they're still shy, but I'm waiting to see the real boom in the street after December and January, when we are going to decide to stop the oil import from Russia. Now, uh, yesterday I went for 100 kilometers to find a gasoline station to fill up my car. So that is really unacceptable. You said you went 100 kilometers in order to find a gas station to fill up your car? Everything was closed. They didn't have gas. They didn't have gasoline. And uh, the, the one that I found Instead of paying 1.8 euro per liter, I paid 2.4. Wow, oh, that is brutal. So when they're talking is about that like around 50, 60, that's like miles, 70 miles, 70 miles. Yeah, it's like 70 miles. Jeez, to get fuel. Like imagine that. Like if you needed, you needed to fill up your car, and all of the gas stations basically were closed. And we had to go to uh, up, yeah. up above Baltimore yeah, to get to get gas. gas. That is astonishing. Elijah, is that happening? across Europe in general? Like, is it that bad across Europe? Or is it that just local? It's happening in France, uh, in many cities in France, and because of the struggle between uh, the owner of the refineries and the workers. But that is not only limited to that. So 
when we have um, a President Emmanuel Macron saying the the era of comfort is ending, he really mean it. When we see a high inflation from raising energy prices, we we see a threat of running out of gas and gasoline this winter. We see a very high risk of recession. We have lost investment in Russia. We have lost the export and the import from Russia. We are suffering in the industry. Germany announced that there are several hospitals that are going to shut down. So we are hitting now the health system that is one of the main systems that's still working in Europe. So if hospitals start closing down because of lack of energy, it is really us who is doing it. So I I can hear today from different sources, they're more and more increasing, people who are really talking about why, I mean, we don't need to be friends with Russians, we don't need to be their enemies, but we can buy their goods if they are willing to selling it to us. While now we have more voices from the leaders saying, well, how the Americans and the Norwegians are our friend when they are selling us the gas four times uh, higher than the normal price, which actually is not the four times only, it's 5.2 times higher than the Russian gas. And going, the oil is going to join soon after the 5th of December. So all these decisions are having a very strong impact on every single European citizen to the point that people that are afraid of their the amount of retirement that is no longer sufficient. I have a doctor friend who is going back to work because he said, I can't live off my retirement because it's no longer enough. I need to go and work again. And he's in his 70s. So we have people who are really changing all their lifestyle because they're going back to work when they need to rest and have paid for 40 years their taxes because the cost of life is uh, unaffordable. Elijah, good morning. Uh, this is Reese. So we've uh, there's reports that uh, nearly 150,000 people have been taking to the streets in Paris um, due to, like you said, the uh, cost of inflation or the rising inflation and the climate crisis, um, cost of gas. I mean, one, I guess, do we, are you, are we expecting, you know, an uprising? And can you give me kind of history of, you know, uprisings like this in Paris or in France? And then if there is an uprising, um, what could Macron do to stabilize it? Or do you think that it would ever get to the point of like, you know, just all out violence? Well, the only decision that Macron and other European leaders, including Germany, uh, Chancellor Schulz, need, they both need to think really seriously the problem that they're going to face. So now we have the losses of uh, companies' revenue. We have companies that are shutting down. The um, I'm, I'm talking to you and my hands are freezing because I don't have the... Uh, heating on because I'm reducing the use of energy, waiting for a harsher winter. So I am one of millions of individuals in Europe that are not going to be happy and they certainly not going to stay in their home waiting for incompetent leaders to decide uh, what to do next. 
So I reckon talking to many people uh, around, friends and people in the street, that this is not going to be acceptable for many months ahead. So what leaders are going to face? They're going to face an uprising in the street. They're going to go back and say, okay, well, we have the option because the um, Nord Stream 1 uh, has been sabotaged. And Turkey is offering a stock uh, warehouse for the gas. So we can go to Turkey and take the Russian gas if you don't want to take it directly from Russia. So we have to find alternative because there are no other alternative. There is a shortage of oil and gas in the world. There is a demand in the winter. There is a very high demand. Supply is not equivalent to the demand. So people are going to say, what can we do? How we can survive? Europe is no longer what it used to be. Either we migrate to other warmer places where people are independent from the U.S. decision and we don't have Washington decided on our behalf when they close mainstream too or what they do and they drag us to war. We don't want to go to war. We've lived enough wars in Europe and we've seen enough war around the world. So I don't think uh, Macron and Schulz are going to resist for very long. And we start hearing Macron uh, complaining about uh, uh, the behavior of the Americans uh, and the policy that they are inflicting upon Europe. Elijah, the Mitz Malik here. Thanks for joining us. Um, speaking of Macron, now we know that it probably, I think probably since June, since the elections, legislative elections in June, Macron's government has pretty much been on the defensive. So, and many people are seeing now that it's making harder for his m- more centrist alliance to implement its domestic agenda and also provo- um, proving pretty difficult for him to get his budget passed. One of the organizers, and Reese brought up the marches, um, one of the um, organizers, and I'm hoping I'm getting his name right, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, Mélenchon. Mélenchon. Yeah, so he, he lost against uh, Macron twice, but he's seeming to play now an outside role in this kind of leftist movement. What do you think his role, his continued role would be and the protests in the street. And also, how does this, with with Macron actually losing legislative power, how do you think this will bode well for him able to get his agenda passed? The point is that um, Macron didn't win because he was the best candidate. It's because he was less terrible candidate available Mm. between him and uh, Marine Le Pen. Mélenchon, in the, uh, as a National Assembly, has won around 147, I think, seats. So he didn't lose for Emmanuel Macron uh, because he was incapable. It's because people wanted to uh, decide between Marine Le Pen and between, uh, em- uh, between Emmanuel Macron because Mélenchon lost on the first Around and he got 20%, and uh, Le Pen got more than him. So between Marine Le Pen and uh, Emmanuel Macron, people choose Macron. So Mélenchon is sitting at the National Assembly. He's going to be a driving force in the street because he represents the left wing. Macron represents the right wing, and we have seen 
the experience, what Macron has produced in the, four, in the first mandate and how he is extremely weak in the second mandate for, only for his choices to go to war against Russia. Because we, if we say that France is not at war uh, against Russia, it's wrong. All NATO nations are against Russia, are at war against Russia. NATO said that, and France is part of NATO, like many other EU nations. So when we go to war and we're not prepared enough, we rely only on the Russian good sense of uh, being um, more uh, forgivable uh, toward us and not declare war on us and not to sanction us. On the contrary, this is a very bad policy that cannot last for very long. So Macron, uh, Mélenchon has very good reasons to attack um, uh, the performance of the president because the president is doing very badly and because people are unhappy and because people find their, uh, the, the value of their currency is no longer uh, solid enough and they are struggling to survive. So I think Mélenchon is going to uh, hit uh, Emmanuel Macron very hard, but this is not going to change a lot because the final decision is to the president. He can be questioned. That his government can be called upon the National Assembly anytime the deputies want, as long as they have the right number. And Mélenchon had more than the uh, required member, number to call the government to uh, answer the question that he wants. However, the final decision is to the president. Now, the president, I think we need to give him a couple of extra months for people to start screaming louder for him to tell the Americans that, look, I can no longer continue with this policy because we saw, we believe that Macron could be more independent and he showed independency in the first few months, but then he sank behind the United States decisions. Let me ask you this, getting into that, the U.S. decisions on this and the schism that it creates in Europe, meaning many of the political leaders in Europe are taking decisions that are against their own self-interest while simultaneously being for the U.S. self-interest. And I think the fact that they're paying for more for energy, the fact that, you know, they're playing for dollars, in a sense, they have to pay more in dollars. The people in Europe, I would imagine, get this every bit as much as the people in the United States gets what's going on and how this is at disadvantaging them. Is there a push to leave the EU? And this is by several states, from Italy, where right here, David Tabrelli, president of Italian energy researcher, Namzi uh, Energia, quote, gas prices were at 0.7 to 0.5 per cubic meter, but has soared to 1.35 by the beginning of the year. Tabrelli said in an interview with La Repubblica newspaper, quote, now in October, they are 2.3 mark and has been crossed. Europe and Italy are experiencing an energy shock of unprecedented scale. And they're basically making a point of saying, Right here, He's, he said that Italians should be ready for rationing during the coldest winter months. He urged households to make alternative uses of energy, such as firewood and pellets, and added that the prices were also up. Meaning, we need you to get firewood and all this stuff, and even the price for those things are increased. You go to France, like you said, they're basically protests, and they're, in, again, dealing with energy sharks themselves. Is there a situation where the countries of Europe, based on the damage that they are themselves taking and knowing that they're doing this for this kind of European project, not for their own domestic interests, is there a push for either Frexit, and I don't know what the Italian one is, what, Erexit or something to that effect? But is there going to be an internal push 
for these countries to basically leave as a direct result of the pressures that they are taking being a part of this NATO project, when the people in those countries know that this is not in their best interest. It's good you mentioned Italy because Giorgia Meloni at the beginning believed to leave the EU. Right. And with her was uh, Matteo Salvini and Silvio Berlusconi of Forza Italia. So all those three leaders believe in, they are right-wing and believe in nationalism and returning to the power of the people and leaving the EU. However, they are confronted with the harsh reality that the EU still offers security more than individual countries when these countries are still caught in the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic and then their collective decision to uh, boycott or to impose sanctions on Russia. So we hear now from uh, Georgia Meloni that she's stepping back on her decision to leave the EU. And we also watch how what's happening in the UK and the losses that UK is suffering from abandoning the EU after the Brexit. So I don't think any of the EU nations today will leave the um, uh, European Union unless it is forced to do so, like uh, Hungary, who wants to buy the gas from Russia, gas and oil, and say, I depend 90% of my energy from Russia. And if you push me and I have to decide between leaving the EU or uh, staying in the EU, but not buying uh, the energy from Russia, I will leave the EU. So the uh, Joseph Borrell is very much aware with the rest of the EU leaders about the intention of Hungary and how far the EU can push. Now, we see the Ursula von der Leyen is pushing the boundaries all the time because she's not an elected person and uh, she she's an appointed a leader in the EU. However, her policy is turning down to be a disaster on the EU countries, and the consequences are not great. So I think the EU, they will start, they've never agreed on a foreign policy, even throughout the years since the creation of the European Union, there was always differences in foreign policy. And now more than ever, because the, the weakest countries or the, uh, the poorer countries are going to suffer and we no longer have the richest countries because the richest country like Italy, France and Germany are becoming poor. So everybody is really who is poor and who is poorer now, not who is, more, who is richer and can support the poor members of the EU. Because that's kind of my point. I mean, if France is looking at itself as becoming poor and Germany poor, like this is Europe, right? I, I would imagine Europe has a certain idea of itself and what it expects as standards. And the fact that those standards are basically being grotesquely destroyed looks like the populations themselves would take a certain amount of frustration with that, especially if they deem that Europe is responsible. Like, for example, Le Pen, her commentary goes for this idea of France first, which is basically the idea that Trump used to get elected. And if France knows that its policy towards, meaning to be this kind of European project, does it add weight to the Frexit thing? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Will Is there pressure being created by opposition forces to the EU, knowing full well that what EU is doing is damaging their local economies? Does this add into Frexit or some of the other countries? I know you said Hungary. 
But your point is they're not going anywhere anytime soon because they put their lot in with the EU at this point. No, they're not going anywhere, particularly when they the US the US behind it, and the US doesn't want the EU to be divided right. because it's better to take 27 nations together, take them to the United Nations and say, well, I have the whole group of the West that represent only 11% of the world population, by the way, and they are all following the U.S. policy. This is this kind of uh, rich uh, industrial countries who are piled in one place and have one voice is something that's very suitable for the U.S., However, this power is fading a little bit. We've seen how OPEC Plus behave by going against the U.S. will and by the most uh, strategically allies of the U.S. Taking these decisions, we see that the U.S. is no longer in its best position to dictate, however, to dictate this policy. However, we still have the West as one pack, more or less, holding together because they feel threatened. And how they feel threatened? Because if they fail in the war in Ukraine, it is the end. It is the beginning of the end of the unilateralism. China is moving forward with a new model, but not to occupy uh, the place of the US. Russia is moving with a different model, but not to replace the US also. So what we have on the table today uh, an offer of a different model that doesn't uh, necessarily include the control of the world by one or two nations. This is the struggle that the U.S. and its allies, the West, are facing today, and they think threatened. That's why they are all together under one umbrella. No, that's a fantastic point. I'm, and I'm glad you made that point. But basically, the reason the European economies and the U.S. is willing to take a hit like this is because from their standpoint, they're losing hegemonic control. And their response to this is, we need to be together to fight this. So what happens to the world if they lose in Ukraine? Because I love the point that Ukraine is about more than just Ukraine. It's about this control of the world and everything else. What would it mean to the, let's say, the unity of the European Union, or for that matter, even the unity of NATO, if indeed they lose in Ukraine, where they've bet so much on the issue of Ukraine? This would be the last question. Well, the first people who will benefit from the loss of the U.S., of it, a world hegemony are the U.S. citizens. Instead of the U.S. spending $6.4 trillion on wars in the Middle East in the last 30 years, they better start spending it on their citizens. Secondly, we will live in a prosperous world where there are no wars and no fight who's going to control what and no um, double standards and hypocrisy about waving the democracy and human rights flag against the country who doesn't submit because there will be no submission. It's more or less the Chinese uh, um, Communist Party uh, model that we want to open the uh, business and we want to have the Silk Road linking Asia to Europe, to, the, to Africa, to the rest of the world, including the strength of Pearl uniting the uh, harbors of all the countries who are on the water, that is mean prosperity to the world uh, population. And when we have um, two thirds of the world population going in that direction, well, the, the left third that represent a little bit Europe, uh, the West, and those who are shy from standing against the US 
will follow the same example. And if the U.S. want to continue waging war, it's going to, uh, not going to be able to do it because it has lost the war in Ukraine with all the mighty of the U.S. putting into the battle. Now, we heard the EU officials saying, I heard it personally several times when they say Russia cannot be defeated in Ukraine. Well, if you know Russia cannot be defeated, then you are going to be defeated. Elijah, man, <laughs> dead one. Absolutely dead on. The voice you guys are listening to is Elijah McGay. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I. And you can find his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we're going to bring in Wyatt Reed, who's in the Donetsk region. Wyatt, how you doing, man? You doing okay this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on, Jamal. No, thank you for joining us. You are still in that region. Explain to me what is going on on the ground in that region. So right now, probably the most notable event uh, recently was yesterday, the city administration building here in Donetsk was totally wiped out, uh, absolutely devastated by uh, at least one, uh, potentially closer to two or three U.S.-supplied HIMARS missiles. Now, uh, several people were injured in that blast. Luckily, it was a Sunday, so uh, it was not uh, too many people working there. And uh, it seems uh, that so far no one has has lost their life in that blast. So um, a little bit of a silver lining there in terms of uh, the human uh, element. But uh, this is obviously seen as a pretty big provocation. This is a civilian administration building. Um, and we have uh, this is coming right now as there are major battles taking place just a few miles away. Um, battles for cities called Artemovsk, or what uh, you know would be called as uh, Artemovsk, or in um, Ukrainian would be referred to as Bakhmut. Well, that's invisible here, by the way. They're not talking about that here at all, even though that's where a main battle is taking place with the uh, Wagner Group. Yeah, well, it's a it's a huge battle. It's very decisive. I mean, this this the the loss of these kinds of territories, and and this really this is kind of the front line that part of the front line that is the most heavily fortified of the entire front. Uh, this is considered to be kind of the, the focal point for um, Ukrainian forces right now. There are a couple other major battles that are taking place right now, but this is a main one. And, um, you know, a loss here for the Ukrainian forces, for the Kiev regime forces, would deal a pretty significant blow to their ability to continuously shell the residents of Donetsk, as they've been doing for the last nearly nine years. Um, so it's basically a, a battle that people here are, are very pleased to know is going on the side of the Donetsk People's Republic forces, of the Russian Federation forces and uh, others, other um, <clears throat> armed groups that are also participating in the hostilities. Because if it if they're able to take these cities, then, you know, it means real safety, a measure of safety for people here that they haven't felt in, um, you know, nearly half a generation. Right. There are a whole uh, there's a whole group of children of teenagers that, you know, really have no memory of what it's like 
to live without with normalcy, what it's like to live without being subjected to artillery fire that could kill you at any moment and take away you or your family or your loved ones. Um, so this is a pretty important moment for the people here in this city. Let me ask you this. Bakhmut, that's, it's, if, as I understand it, it's somewhat of a linchpin of Ukrainian force, especially as a gateway to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. What is the expectation? Meaning, there's, correct me if I'm wrong, there are three forces surrounded at this point. Who else is helping the Wagner group? I mean, is it a coalition of forces? Also, do we know how many people are there? Meaning, how many Ukrainian forces are trying to hold the line in that territory? That kind of information is very hard to come by. It's pretty highly classified from both sides, I believe. Um, but in terms of the of the the significance, the, the geographic significance, uh, if they're able to take Slavyansk, well, that means that um, water will be able to be restored here. Uh, that the water supply to the city has been dramatically reduced. Now you get it uh, one or two days a week for the most part. Um, people have to uh, to you know basically go days without showering. They have to time their days around the specific schedule, knowing you know water will not be available until this point. And after a few hours, you know if I miss it, I miss my chance. Then I just you know I miss my chance at a hot shower. Um, you know it's not pleasant to shower in the cold, especially in the winter. No, it's not. Uh, I think people have pretty high hopes that, um, you know, doing sponge baths during the winter with cold water is not something that really anybody... That's not fun. No, that's not fun. Definitely, you know, the hope is that they can take back this city and then take back a few more um, and to be able to restore sort of these these social services, these basic services that people rely on. Get into that for a moment for me, because we don't, but from the American and from Western press standpoint... Ethnic Russian Ukrainians don't exist. That's the way. That's the way they framed it, right? I mean, they don't talk about the war. They don't talk about the fact that they have been killing ethnic Russian Ukrainians for the last eight years. They don't talk about thousands of them being killed by the Ukrainian military. They don't talk about any of that stuff. So, from your standpoint, explain to me or explain to the audience what is it like on the ground talking to the various people there, and what have those people encountered for the last eight years, if not longer? Well, people here, as you correctly noted, basically just do not exist in the eyes of the mainstream media. Um, they go to great lengths to avoid covering these people. I spoke, uh, you know, yesterday to a colleague who works with Al Jazeera Arabic, and you know, there she is here. They have, I believe, three. Uh, she has three colleagues on the other side of the border, you know, on the or on the other side of the front, on the Ukrainian side. Um, and but they sent they sent one over here to show that that's not really what they're doing in Al Jazeera English, right? I'll just hear English isn't covering this. Um, you know, Western mainstream media just is not touching this at all. They won't sell it to anybody here. And I think the reason is that if they did, then they would be forced to end up showing their audiences the reality of the situation. Um, they, there's nothing else to cover here except for the, the effects, you know, the impacts of what um, Kiev regime forces mean for the ethnic Russians and for, you know, the people here who aren't ethnic Russian, uh, but who speak Russian or who simply just want to kind of observe a way of life that isn't, uh, you know, subjugated to open Nazi forces. I've, I've been all throughout the region in the past few days and got to go up to a city named Rubish Noye outside Severodonetsk. And as I showed you with some of the videos that uh, I've been uploading recently to social media, to Telegram, to Twitter, um, you know, folks who want to find those can check me out on Twitter at WyattReed13, Telegram, just WyattReed. And, uh, you know, some of these also have been up on our Sputnik Telegram and our Sputnik website as well. 
Um, but uh, you'll see videos of <clears throat> basically what it means to live, to be on the receiving end of this. I took a, an interview and recorded an interview with a just absolutely heartbroken uh, 68-year-old woman named Natalia uh, there who we interviewed. And um, immediately the first obvious thing is that, well, directly behind her is this massive crater, probably 20 feet across and 10 feet deep. Um, and we asked her, you know, what's going on? Do you live here? She said, yes, I'm all alone. I'm the last person who lives here in the block. Um, and who did this to you? We asked who, who, you know, made this crater. And she said, those cursed fascists, meaning obviously the Ukrainians. And, um, she broke down in tears talking about, you know, how hard it has been, you know, uh, I mean, she's living without windows right now. And she had all her documents blown up in the explosion, um, which just devastated the whole apartment building and, uh, just a few weeks ago. And so she's been unable to, or been stu- struggling. She was also injured in the blast. So she has difficulty walking now. She walks with a cane, with a makeshift cane. And she's had trouble getting access to humanitarian aid because all of her documents um, are were blown up and now she has difficulty proving uh, just who exactly she is. So, you know, we kind of, um, at this point in the day, we, I sort of took off my journalist hat and put on my just, you know, decent person hat and said, well, okay, well, we have to figure out a way to make sure this woman gets something to eat because she's just, you know, it's absolutely devastating. You know, I can't imagine leaving my grandmother in that position. Um, and I certainly don't think anybody listening would, would want to do anything other than, than what we did. And we, you know, kind of just stopped what we're doing. We went down to the humanitarian aid office. We explained the situation. And one of the volunteers there um, came back uh, with us and uh, provided um, some bread, some sausage, some, you know, food that will hopefully be able to get her through the next uh, short while um, while while sort of the, the documentation process gets figured out. Um, and, you know, she was so grateful, but, um, uh, just talking to her, it was absolutely, absolutely just devastating. And, you know, she said that she hasn't been able to contact her kids. If the phone service isn't working and hasn't yet been restored there. Um, and this means, you know, she just said every night I look up on the wall and say, to my photos of my children, you know, look what has become of our life. And um, we asked her, you know, if, what she might say to some of the Americans, knowing that it was, um, you know, American tax money that funded this high Mars missile that just totally upended her life. And she said, I can't imagine. I mean, they must just have no heart. They must be beasts because why else would they do this to me? And, you know, I really I wish that I had something that I could say um, you know, on some level, but I really didn't. It was, you know, I, I, I wish that there was more that I could say. No, to until her. then. Otherwise. Yeah. Why, we're going to have to close it because we're coming to the edge of the hour. But man, that is heartbreaking to put it mildly. And yeah, I can imagine not necessarily having anything to tell her being an American. But Wyatt, thank you for this, man. That is the most reporting that we get from the ground um, that most Americans would ever hear. But Wyatt Reed, he's a Sputnik. Um, host, or in this case, reporter on the ground in the Donetsk region. You guys are listening to Fault Lines back in a moment. Fault Lines.
Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. And under normal circumstances, that is not something you hear. It is amazing the way we whitewash that part. When they talk about, oh, NATO and Russian aggression, and Biden, even Biden's speech. Oh, they would expected us, Putin expected them to um, view him as um, saviors. Well, they did. Because by Biden's framing, those ethnic Russian Ukrainians don't exist. That's Biden's framing. So the fact that those people were like, yes, let's vote to get out of this attacks on us. If we're going to take a thing that allows us to be part of the Russian government, in which case they now will get involved to prevent us from being attacked, not to mention infrastructure and everything else. Yes, we're going to jump on that, which they did. Yep. And so from Biden's standpoint and the Western standpoint, those people don't exist. And because those people don't exist, you have to push them by gunpoint. The it is a warped framing that they've given us in this country where they've eliminated all context for a situation that the American public can basically look at and can make an honest assessment warped on. Warped frame, framing or propaganda? Both of those things are the same. <laughs> yeah. I mean, both of those yeah. things are the same, right? I need to frame this to you in a way where, mm-hmm. yeah, it's that part. And that's the most aggravating part of this. It's the American public fully understood and had a contextual view of it. They may disagree with Putin, but they will be um, aghast what the Western leaders have basically been trying to do for all of these years and brought to fruition. And the damage that they're taking in Europe, or for that matter, in the U.S. with all these job losses and everything else is directly related to the policies of Biden and the Western gang of idiots went along with. Let's serenity now. Let's get to headlines. Reese, on In domestic news, just 33% of Americans would vote. 33%? Of Americans would vote to re-elect President Biden if he were the presidential, if the presidential election were held today. A poll of 1,206 registered voters conducted for Fox News, well, by Beacon Research and Shaw and Company Research has found. 33% of Americans told pollsters that they would vote to re-elect the incumbent, while 54% said they would pick someone else. Biden's showing is the lowest amongst any of the past three presidents. With Donald Trump hitting a 35% re-elect rating low point January 2018, Barack Obama suffering a re-elect low of 39% in September 2010, before rebounding and defeating his Republican rival Mitt Romney in 2012. 71% of self-described Democrats said they would re-elect Biden, while 19% would vote for someone else. Among Republicans, 91% said they would pick someone else, with 4% saying they would stick with Biden. Maybe they didn't understand the question. Independents proved to be the most uncertain, with 13% saying they would re-elect Biden, and 54% saying pick someone else. Another 23% said it was too soon to say at this point. The Department of Homeland Security has temporarily lifted restrictions on seaborne supplies of the liquefied natural gas to its Caribbean to the Caribbean island of Puerto Rico as part of recovery efforts from Hurricane Fiona, which resulted in severe power outages, U.S. Secretary of Homeland Alejandro Mayorkas said on Monday. In support of the Puerto Rican people as they continue to recover from Hurricane Fiona, I have approved a temporary and targeted Jones Act waiver to address the unique and urgent need for liquefied natural gas in Puerto Rico, Mallorca said. According to the Jones Act, all maritime cargo supplies between U.S. ports must be delivered by vessels flying the U.S. flag. 
The Homeland Security can grant a waiver if particular transportation is in the interest of U.S. national defense, as is now the case with Puerto Rico, the authority said. Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders said that the Federal Reserve's attempt to rein in inflation are hurting the economy more than they are helping. I think they're hurting the situation, Sanders said on NBC's Meet the Press. I think it's wrong to be saying the way we deal with inflammation, inf- I'm sorry, inflation is by lowering wages and increasing unemployment. That is not what we should be doing. Sanders also noted that he would not increase interest rates further. God bless Bernie Sanders. Ithaca College in New York has been slammed for segregating staff by racial affinity groups, having them meet on different days throughout a specific year-long course. The Anti-Racism Institute is an optional weekly event taking place at the college during the 2022-2023 academic year. Faculty and staff members are given the option to attend Monday sessions for faculty and staff who identify as people of color or Thursday sessions for faculty and staff who identify as white, according to Fox Digital News. My question is, what day do the billionaires meet? Speaking of billionaires, U.S. billionaire and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates said he would not rule out a meeting with the Taliban if it helps Afghanistan eradicate poliomyelitis. Honestly, I don't know if there's some sensitivity around that. I would do pretty much anything to help the polio campaign. It's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's top priority, Gates told the British newspaper The Telegraph. The billionaire said that the foundation's partners had already met with the Taliban in Qatar and added he was pleased that the movement did not sack the previous health minister, who he said was quite capable. Stockton police said they have made an arrest in connection to six murders in California. On Saturday, Stockton Police Chief Stanley McFadden, City Manager Harry Black, and Mayor Kevin Lincoln announced in a joint joint press conference that they had arrested 43-year-old Wesley Brownlee at around 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. Our surveillance team followed this person while he was driving. We watched his patterns and determined early this morning he was on a mission to kill. He was out hunting. Yikes. In international news, European Union foreign ministers are expected to give the green light to a mission to train around 15,000 Ukrainian troops at their meeting in Luxembourg on Monday. Quote, we must continue to help Ukraine. The most important matters <coughs> excuse me, are the new tranche of aid to Ukraine and the training mission. I hope everybody approves. The European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, told reporters upon arrival in Luxembourg. Basic training is initially to be provided to 12,000 soldiers with specialized instructions to 2,800 more, according to the report. France would probably be at war with Russia if Joseph Borrell was in charge of the nation's foreign policy and security policy, according to National Rally Marine, Marine Le Pen. I believe that we must hold to the tools of diplomacy because when I hear the statements of the head of European diplomacy, Joseph Borrell, if he made decisions for us, I think we would have already entered the war, the French opposition leader said, speaking to BFM on Tuesday. I'm sorry, on Sunday. 
Le Pen cautioned against crossing the line of assistance to Ukraine and becoming a direct participant in the conflict between Moscow and Kiev. The French people don't want this. I don't want this, she stressed. Be careful not to take too big a step, which would take us to war. New Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, is the de facto prime minister, so says a backbench Tory MP. There's real power in Downing Street, but it's not in number 10. It's in building number 11, according to Sir Roger Gale, according to uh, he told Sky News presenter Kay Burley on Monday morning. These comments came hours before Hunt's press conference to announce more tax and spending changes. The veteran North Thanet said MP said all the shots were now being called by the chancellor who trusts appointed on Friday in a bid to survive a crisis of confidence in her only months old leadership. The Swedish parliament has approved moderate party leader Ulf Christensen as the new prime minister as he as head of a three party coalition. Christensen candidacy was supported by 176 lawmakers, 173 voted against, as broadcast by the parliament's website. Ulf Christensen, the narrow victor at a general election on September 11th, had stated on Friday that he secured a deal with a form with to form a three-party government between his moderate party, the Christian Democrats, and the Liberals, supported in parliament by their key ally, the Sweden Democrats. The delivery of advanced Israeli weapons systems to Ukraine would be would destroy interstate ties between Moscow and Tel Aviv, according to Russian Security Council Deputy Chairman Dmitry Medvedev. Medvedev. Yeah. Medvedev. Israel seems to be planning to send weapons to the Kiev regime. This is a very reckless move. It will destroy all interstate relations between our nations, Medvedev wrote on in the Telegram post on Monday. I won't even mention that the Banderite degenerates were and remain Nazis. It's enough to take a look at their symbols used by their modern-day henchmen. If they are supplied with weapons, it will be time for Israel to declare Bandera and Shukavik their heroes, he added, referring to the Ukrainian World War II-era ultra-nationalists whose OUN, UPA insurgent forces collaborated with the Nazis and slaughtered tens of thousands of Poles, Jews, Russians, and pro-Soviet Ukrainians in the areas of Western Ukraine under their control between 1943 and 1944. On this day in history, in 1854, French and British forces bombard Sevastopol for the first time during the Crimean War. In 1907, Guglielmo Marconi's company became the first commercial transatlantic wireless service between Glace Bay, Nova Scotia, Canada, Clifton, and, and Clifton, Ireland. In 1973, OPEC oil ministers used oil as an economic weapon in the Arab-Israeli war, mandating a cut in exports and recommending an embargo against unfriendly states. And these are your news headlines for today, Monday, October the 17th. And you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. So we're going to talk to um, KJ No about issues associated with China. They just had a conference. What is it? The 20th conference. There it is. 
Yeah, that's going to be at 9.30. So at 9.15, we're basically going to take calls, and we're going to allow the public to give their, you know, their take. What's the most important thing to you guys? The number is going to be 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And at 9.30, it's going to be the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party. And there were certain speeches associated with Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, Chinese defense. And even, I mean, there's an interesting question here about how China is regarding all of this. I mean, if you're thinking about this from, there's a perspective that one can take that a lot of this has been created and propagated in order to, let's say, cut ties between Russia and Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's true, well, China is also has ties. Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the um, Belt and Road Initiative, and those things are basically trying to create this web of economic commerce between Europe, China, and between other parts of the world. If the U.S. hated this connection between Russia and Europe so much that they were willing to blow up pipelines, willing to go so far as to propagate a war. And again, when I point to net means net, where they make this point about saying, look, it was clear that if the West kept pushing in this direction, that they were going to hit a red line. And I would argue that those red lines were understood going all the way back to the fall of the Soviet Union, where they say we wouldn't move an inch to the east. If that is true for Ukraine, what does it mean for China and all of these organizations that they are basically trying to create as, almost as a second economic union? What are you talking about? BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation, or for that matter, Shanghai Cooperation, I mean, organization, or what's the other one? Belt and Road. All of those things are secondary economic orders around the world that doesn't really require the West, even though, of course, they want the West to be a part of it. How does the U.S., if you're looking at as war planners, if the world is a chessboard, what do you think about those organizations and what do you think about those organizations in regards to your own dominance in economy or for the matter, political? Look, the Ukraine issue goes beyond Ukraine. And I'm glad Elijah made that point when he was talking about it, um, basically saying, if this is a loss for NATO, what does it mean from the standpoint of a global order? And for that matter, for that matter, is it that the West is taking this massive economic hit purely because from their standpoint, if we lose here, our economic, political, and for that matter, even militaristic power on some level, gets demoted. I don't know. I find it to be fascinating. KJ No can definitely get into the aspect of China with this, so we will get to him at 9.30. But we'll be taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what all of us are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so right now. With the chat, a tweet, and of course, by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. And let's go to Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Thank y'all for taking my call. I got two comments. First, I'd like to say free Julian Assange. My first comment is this. Is it like um, they're starting to put troops in Haiti again to... Um, up the revolution that's going on there because the people want their freedom. They want their own country back. But Tarif, is that a revolution or is that just a riot or chaos? I mean, don't, look, I, I'm not taking a decision one way or the other. The Haitian government that is basically backed by the U.S. 
um, and that has some level of culpability or at least a belief in culpability in uh, Moise's assassination. So I, I get it, right? And so you have this government that is basically installed back, et cetera, and that government is basically asking for Western help to come in in order to assist. Then you have basically riots by gangs, and there's even a question about whether or not the government is kind of inspiring this stuff in order to get Western aid sent to the country in and of itself. If the country is devolving into this kind of, let's say, um, hellscape, what should be done? I mean, it seems like it's, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, it doesn't necessarily seem to be a functioning government at this point, and yet it's calling for Western help. What should be done, Therese? We shouldn't, they shouldn't have to put troops down. Uh, um, the, first of all, the president wasn't even elected. He was installed. Agreed. Western powers, and the people are um, upset. They want him gone. They want new elections. Well, they can take over. Jeremy Perry, the professor out of UCLA, can explain that better than me. Second comment is dealing with Elon Musk buying Twitter. I was thinking over the weekend, I said, why is the feds starting to look into him now? Because, you know, the deadline for him to buy Twitter is October the 28th, right? Uh-huh. And now the feds looking into him. I say, is it that they look into him right now to stall him? Oh, wait. You mean to stall, what, Elon Musk for the elections? What do you mean? And what, what I mean, because if he buy it before, I mean, if, if it's done before November the 8th, that means he'll get all rid of most of uh, the bots. You stop the shadow banner. That I see. I see. Your point is that basically if Elon Musk takes Twitter now, he's going to go in and put through policies that basically have more of a free speech type thing. That is going to be basically against, let's be honest, Democrats, right? They've been the ones that have been trying to knock off this notion of speech online. That may, uh, what, do you, what do you guys think? You know, I, I don't think that they're, I, I don't think he'll, it, if he buys it even before the election, I don't, I, I think that he's going to do some changes as some changes as far as free speech. A lot of people are saying, oh, well, Donald Trump is coming back. To Free speech for conservatives will mean Donald Trump comes back. Mm-hmm. So if he doesn't do that, then it's not going to be free Yeah, the conservatives speech. don't yeah, care. They're right. going to be complaining about it. Well, I think he was talking about something that was close to the First Amendment when he was talking about Twitter. That basically, do we already have rules for this stuff? And does Twitter have to take these kind of secondary steps in order to kind of negative, negate people's ability to say this or that on the network? Um, we'll see. Jamal, it could affect the election if he allowed people start tweeting, you know, without being shadow banned. Well, put it this way. Twitter under Elon Musk would have allowed the Trump-Biden laptop story. I mean, the Trump-Biden uh, the laptop story. It would have de- meaning yes. he wouldn't have not have gotten rid of that story. Yeah. And if you let the public look at that, they can come to their conclusion whether you think it's they just or not. They wouldn't have censored it. Right. Yeah. He wouldn't I'm have censored it. If, if he had enough time between the time he purchased it and the election, then maybe something that would affect the outcome. Right. But because it's so yeah, it's late. Push, yeah, it's late in the day. But we'll see. Tarif, good point. I didn't think of it that way, but good point. Good point. All right. We have Mark, New York. What's going on, Mark? Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Oh, God. I can never remember her name. Reese? <laughs> Reese. She's one of my favorite hosts, their co host at the time. Well, thank you. I'm living with a bit of anxiety. Um, and pretty much with respect to, I have a sort of perplexed observation and analysis of the current international. Uh, dilemma uh, with Ukraine. Go for it. I'm, as, as a. As a Advocate for multi multipolarism and for a concern of African nationalist liberations and liberation movements all over the over the world. I can't wait for the European hegemony to fall. 
Well, it's on its way. <laughs> I mean, if, if, look, if this ain't it, I don't know what is. I mean, like at this point. With that, the end, end of American hegemony, but also the doctrine of white supremacy, which is it, it contradictions so much because what's look at happening to Europeans themselves, yet to be told you're white and there's a privilege, but yes, we'll destroy you too, means that we need a different analysis. We need to observe it not from a racial perspective solely, and I'm not saying the Europeans simply look at it for a second, but Kaplan's built on those cornerstones of racism and, and the doctrine of uh, white supremacy uh, allows people to have this skewed notion of what really is taking place, which is essentially the, the, the evolution of capitalism and currency markets and the fact that fiat currency for Americans will mean, uh, the class of fiat currency will, and the empire will mean a very different evaluation of who we are as Americans. And that uh, we will have to assess, one, in view of the fact that there's no gold, we don't have any, that we've been stealing it for a long time. Even the French said, give me my gold when, they, when uh, what's his name, moved uh, his, uh, his chips into the harbor. To say, listen, you can't keep stealing from everybody and robbing everybody and claiming you're the wealthiest country and the most pure country in the world. No, this is going to end. And this is where Americans, we all, even though we may welcome it, uh, some of us, will find ourselves in this real sense of uh, problem economically. Yeah. And so there is where I think I, I, I have the anxiety that even with the Fed talking about the rates going up, and understandably, they know there's too much money in circulation that is that is affecting the, the stock market and this these these sort of empty companies that are running. Right, zombie companies. Yeah, they have to zombie They have to crush the labor market and labor wages in order to drive down low price costs in America and then reindustrialize it. That's the big agenda. Well, the reindustrialization though is coming from Europe, though. That's the weird part. Like, meaning those companies, it's you can't compete with China, right? You can't compete from the standpoint of efficiency and all that stuff. But if you were in, let's say, Germany, where you're paying in higher taxes, if you're in Italy or some companies in Europe, and then you all of a sudden get inflation, where you can't afford to keep your industry running, and you make the choice, okay, fair enough, we're going to move our business. We're not going to move it to China. We're going to move it to the states. Which means if you're in the United States, Europe is taking a massive, massive economic hit on this stuff. Um, Elijah Meunier talking about driving 100 or 70 miles for a gas station. And that's not just him. That's companies also needing to supplement the cost that they're basically paying for the cost of, of energy and everything else that's hitting them and in their industries. So, yeah. My point. Well, I was going to say you may be right. Labor, American labor costs are considered one of the highest in the world. We're not competitive with, and, I'm, and, and that's a good thing because we've had to fight for the, every inch against the capitalist margins of profit. So, understandably, they're going to destroy what was what Europe's benefit, Europe's labor market had benefited from colonialism and the Industrial Revolution. Right. As they evolved, they moved the jobs outside of that. And of course, with energy, in me, that shock of the energy uh, uh, cost uh, collapsing for them, or at least not having it is what's driving them to say, listen, we've got to do away with all this. They, they, exactly. They, they have destroyed themselves. There's a self-inflicted wound. But America will face the same thing. And I think the hegemony, the, the, the elite know this and knew this all along. The policy was we will only onshore bring back industrial uh, prowess of America when we can drive labor costs down. But here we come out of COVID and labor's got a little bit of hedge and move, trying to move forward over 40, 80 years of yeah. 
fighting this war against the elites and the capitalist interest. This is what said, well, we've got to raise interest rates, not just to drive out the, ca- the cash flow and the, the, the liquidity in the market, but also to drive these labor. Oh, your thought is they're doing this to crush labor in and of itself, not necessarily an inflation issue. And once they do that, they will also better from from Europe's deindustrialization. Mark, I think there's a lot of stuff that's going on. I can't say you're wrong on this at all. Europe is taking a hit, self-inflicted blow. And we are, what, $31 trillion in debt with nothing really to show for it in real terms. Um, And yeah, if there is a change in the world order, let's say, for example, the you know, petrodollar goes away. Or let's say the dominance of the dollar starts edging away because of a bucket of currencies that other countries are creating. Yeah, we're going to go through all sorts of crisis here. But here's the thing about that, Mark, as you know, when America catches a cold, we catch the flu. Well, no, you mean the rest of the world catch the flu. When we catch a cold, the rest of the world catches. Um, He was referring to black people in America, but yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) The we in this case was black, not Americans in general. Okay, fair enough. It's a Malcolm X quote. Yeah. All right, so let's do this. We have Robert from D.C. Mark, thanks, my man. Robert, District of Columbia. What's going on, my man? I want to give a good quick shout-out to our man Baltimore Charles. We ain't heard from him in a while. He almost got me killed, inviting me up to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Huh? Is somebody almost got you killed, inviting you where? <laughs> you don't remember last year, he, he was like, people from the city could, brothers from the city could come up there. I'm up by the old uh, ESPN zone, and I'm looking for a pack of smokes. And I go down the street, and it was a triangle street. You know, it, it stores on both sides. It's, it's like a, a alley almost, but it's a street. And, it, oh, man, it was too crazy. But Baltimore Charles stopped that, man. Okay. okay. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> glad you haven't been whacked. So that's, that's fair enough. Baltimore Charles need to cut it out. It's fair enough. What's the? We've got a mission on this planet. Yeah. Apparently it's not over. <laughs> so what's your, what's your um, topic beyond Baltimore and beyond getting whacked? Um, Robert, what's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, uh, what I called him in about is that there, there, there was no reason for us to even go into Green New Deal that's going on over there in Europe. Well, the Green New Deal thing was because, you know, climate is an issue and because they were trying to do something about the fossil fuels and everything else that we were using, trying to find something that wouldn't necessarily destroy the environment while also supplying energy to the planet that we need in cops. And so it wasn't necessarily a European thing. I mean, the United States had its own want for it, especially in the context of the Democratic Party. Europe just had its own idea of it that is basically, at this point, destroyed. We can't go with that that wind farm thing that they got going on over there. We can't go with that wind farm. Why not? It ain't even generating any energy. What do you mean wind farms don't generate industry? I guarantee you that wind farms do generate industry. Energy. Are you aware of the, the, the massive? They say everyone is like the alpha tower in the ocean. No, a wind farm is just a windmill that is supplying energy to a particular area. And if you lump them and you put them in the particular areas, they can generate more or less energy. But that's more of an engineering analysis than anything else. They do work. Europe has them all over the place. It's just they can't supply all of the energy that you need for a particular time. Meaning there's an energy, let's say, um, um, a variable basket of so you have wind farms. You might have nuclear. You might have coal. Like apparently people are burning wood now in Europe. But wind farms is just one aspect of it. It's not the entirety. Even if you came up with nuclear fusion, it wouldn't supply all of your energy. You would still have other baskets of energy. Uh, I hear what you're saying, but you're not making any sense. What I'm saying is absolutely flat fact true. 
<laughs> you made them not making sense. Well, so what do you disagree with? That wind farms don't produce energy, that there's not a variable basket of energy, that even if you had solar power or solar uh, nuclear fusion, that you would still have a basket of other energy reserves? Possibly. Because that possibly, that's flat fact true. That's what's happening now. You have some countries, like, for example, France used to have nuclear power, but that was one aspect of it. They used to get gas or from Russia. It's a basket of energy. It's just no different. It's always been this way. I called in last week or maybe the week before, and I asked you guys, that, is it fact that Obama has this warehouse full of documents that the, the, in Chicago are old furniture warehouses? I have no idea. I have no idea what Obama's keeping. I don't think he does anymore. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about a similar document. No, they, yeah, that that he he doesn't anymore. He did at some point because that's where they restored in anticipation of them going to the presidential library. Uh, I see. But so yes, they were at one point, but now he has his library up and running. So no issue. Um, <laughs> Robert. Thank you, my man. <laughs> Appreciate your call. But look, we stay are, out of Baltimore. We, yeah, we stay out of Baltimore. That's right. I don't want anything happen to you. Um, but we have our guests, KJ No. We're going to have a conversation about China coming up. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Reese Everson, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we're joined with K.J. No. K.J. No is a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. K.J., welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I am glad that you can join us. So 20th National Congress of the Communist Party has just been in session. Can you explain to us what that is just before we start and step into it? Um, the 20th National Congress, um, sometimes called the 20 Big or uh, Ashudai, uh, is actually, it's the 101st, uh, in the 101st anniversary of the Communist Party, it is the 20th um, meeting. Uh, and it's where they come together and they discuss their leadership, their accomplishments, the guidelines moving forward, and who will, you know, helm the party. It's very, very important because it's a way in which the party and the people evaluate uh, how the uh, party has been delivering for the country. Uh, they reflect, uh, they analyze, and then they say, this is how we're moving forward. And then they also elect their uh, top leadership. And in that top leadership, there are 2,300 delegates who go to uh, the, the Congress and these uh, 2,300 delegates will pick the central committee. The central committee will pick the Politburo, and the Politburo will pick the standing committee. And uh, the leader of the standing committee will be the uh, general secretary, which uh, will be Xi Jinping. Okay. And then Xi Jinping, they're talking about a third term for him, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, this is, I mean, people are making a lot out of this because they say, oh, he's making himself dictator for life. But uh, let me remind our listeners that there have been five uh, leaders of the Chinese uh, Communist Party, uh, and uh, only one of them has actually uh, had a 10-year term. Uh, every single one of them has gone past the 10-year mark. 
And so it's a little bit, um, um, I think, uh, disingenuous to make it seem like, you know, this is first that this Congress is only about Xi Jinping. It's not. It's about the entire party and its accomplishments. And secondly, that this is somehow turning Xi Jinping into a dictator for life. That's not how it works in China. Uh, China doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't like gerontocracies. So even if he does get this extension for another five years, there are no guarantees for anything beyond that. I see what you mean. It's only for another term. It doesn't necessarily mean he's going to get it a term afterwards. It's a five-year period. It may go longer or may go shorter. Not shorter, I'm sorry, but it may stop at the end of this third term. That's your point. He's not a dictator in that sense. Yeah, or, or after a fourth term, but it's not something which will go on indefinitely. And to, and, to, and to use the term dictator, again, Xi Jinping is completely misguided. Let me ask you this. From the standpoint of looking at the Ukrainian conflict, and let me stay with this first. I have a lot of thoughts in my head on this. Um, resolving the Taiwan issue was one of the issues that came up in the speech. And it's this quote, resolving the Taiwan question is a matter for the Chinese, a matter that must be resolved by the Chinese. He told basically the polydetic party delegates, quote, we will continue to strive for peaceful reunification with the greatest sincerity and utmost effort, but we would never promise to renounce the use of force and we reserve the option of taking all measures necessary, he said. And there's another point to this about the military. This is right here. Over the next five years, the People's Liberation Army will intensify troop training and enhance combat preparedness across the board, Xi told audience at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. Quote, we will strengthen the party, bidding across the board, the people's armed forces ensure that they will always obey the party's command, he said. According to Xi, institutions will be created within the PLA to improve political work, strengthen command, enhance discipline, and combat corruption among its ranks. Having a capable military is a strategic task for building a modern socialist society in China. She insisted, adding, quote, national security is the bedrock of national rejuvenation, unquote. A lot of this is pointed to this notion of there are foreign actors <laughs> that are trying to intrude upon what we consider to be domestic policy. And that part and parcel to China being able to accomplish its objectives economically or for that matter politically requires a strong and strengthened military in order to defend the country. And I'm fascinated by this because this gets into the issue of Ukraine on some level. As China is, China has to be looking at Ukraine with a certain evaluation that the U.S., or for that matter, Western countries, want to get them embroiled into something similar. I mean, if anything, this decoupling of Europe and Russia, on some level, especially if it's this idea of control or U.S. control or hegemonic control, would also have to take place in regards to China, meaning the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt the Road Initiative, or even for that matter, BRICS, of trying to decouple Europe from China, also using Taiwan as a pretext to do so. I mean, that has to be floating in the background of the mind of the people who are basically at this convention as they're talking about their domestic issues, either with Taiwan, Hong Kong, or for that matter, national defense. What's your take? Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. First, you know, the Chinese are not stupid. They can read and they can read the tea leaves. Uh, currently, there was there is the Taiwan Policy Act, which is wending Congress right now. Uh, and if it passes, it will signal the end of the one China policy, literally a declaration of war. It um, prepares for a rotational presence of uh, U.S. forces on Taiwan Island, i.e. turning Taiwan into a military base, fast-tracking weapons, you know, declaring it a non-NATO ally, uh, sending $6.5 billion worth of asymmetrical uh, lethal uh, arms. Uh, and it, it does everything except literally declare uh, war. But among those provisions, 803, Section 803, is about sanctions against China, exactly the type of sanctions that the U.S. 
uh, has been levying against Russia, decoupling the sanctions war, uh, and is using Taiwan Island as a provocation to and a bandwagon uh, against China is a very, very real thing. So they're aware of that. Now, in the 20th Party Congress speech, Xi Jinping did not say anything about foreign policy uh, challenges, especially regarding Ukraine or Russia. He just said things in very, very uh, generic terms. But he says that, you know, they have an independent policy of peace opposed to all forms of hegemonism and Cold War mentality. Uh, and then he also said that China had survived bullying and blackmail, uh, external blackmail, containment, blockade, extreme pressure, and that they need to be prepared for more of the same, that there are changes unseen in a century. So there's a kind of preparing the uh, populace uh, for you know potential hard times, including kinetic war. Uh, but there was nothing that was said explicitly naming the U.S., naming time, uh, naming uh, Russia, etc. Taiwan, it spoke in the most generic terms, and it simply re- repeated formulas that it's been saying since 2002. I see what you mean. I mean, but the increase into the military standards on some level is not being done willy-nilly. I mean, if I could, I would think that China is talking about bolstering the military to a world-class standard. It has everything to do with this idea of the threats that they basically feel from abroad. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, that's absolutely correct. It is improving its military. It wants to have a first-class military. It understands security. You cannot have security. Uh, you know, uh, you cannot have development without security. That said, I will point out that China's military expenditure as a percentage of GDP has actually been dropping over the last 20 years. And that's something people forget. But if China, you know, for example, were to join NATO, it would be sanctioned because it is not spending enough of its GDP on the military. Huh. Interesting. I mean, I guess I'll look at this and think to let, let me let's go to something else real quick and I'll come back to this. Semiconductors in the US. Basically, the US is passing policy to bolster our own semiconductor supply while also simultaneously sanctions various companies that the US can work with from China. I mean, what is the response in China over this? I mean, all things being equal, China has no this policy is directed directly at them. And it's not just the U.S. on this, even the European Union right here. Uh, The ministerial paper, which advised the European Union countries on overall China's strategy reportedly that, quote, it has become an even stronger global competitor for the EU and the U.S., unquote, and their allies adding that the development makes it necessary to, quote, assess how to best respond to challenges stemming from Beijing's actions. Now, Beijing typically looks at the world in this kind of win-win way, um, but Europe is basically looking at these guys as now an enemy or competitor, just like the U.S. is looking at them in the same sense, which means sanctions and everything else basically fall from that. How is China resolving this? I mean, or how are they even looking at this kind of tenor? that Europe and the U.S. is making against them? Well, they're criticizing both Europe uh, and the United States for these unilateral actions. Uh, what the U.S. is forgetting, and I think it's a very serious mistake, is a large number of uh, materials for semiconductors come from China. There's uh, not an insignificant amount of the production that happens in China. The China is capable of making some of its own semiconductors, not the extreme cutting edge, you know, uh, you know, small semiconductors that are used in AI, but a, a large part of the semiconductor industry, it's, it can make itself. And China spends $400 billion importing semiconductors. 
if it decided to take that $400 billion uh, and just spread it uh, internally, then it could build a lot of plants and it would eventually catch up. Uh, it would create massive capacity for itself. It would become self-sufficient. And in the meantime, you know, Western semiconductor uh, industries would essentially crash. I mean, we also already see that in the damage done to TSMC uh, and other, you know, uh, uh, non-Chinese semiconductor companies, which are really struggling. Uh, you know, they're laying off people. Their, you know, stock dividends have dropped by massive amounts. So this is all very, very bad for out. Uh, the Chinese oppose it. They criticize it. They believe in win-win mutual cooperation, uh, that, you know, that, both countries can benefit from this. They think it's poorly uh, designed and poorly uh, thought out, but they understand it is an act of hostility. I'll point out one more thing about this. I mean, this uh, some of this legislation is still kind of uh, you know being prepared, but the Bureau of Industry and Security is uh, amending export administration regulations regarding uh, I, um, uh, microchips, and it is saying that. Uh, specific activities of U.S. persons that support the development of certain ICs in the PRC require a license. In other words, this is kind of astounding. It's saying that uh, that uh, people uh, who work in in chip development no longer have the freedom of choice, no longer have the freedom of movement, no longer have the freedom of conscience. If you have knowledge in a field that is important to us, that is your intellect belongs to us, not simply your intellectual products or the patents associated with them, but that your literally your intellect uh, belongs to us. And that's kind of a chilling, extraordinary uh, infringement on, on human freedom, as far as I can tell. I'm curious. I mean, what's the expectation, though? China's going to have to recreate their own industry in regards to these chips? And is it going to have somewhat of a negative impact on China itself and their growth, development, et cetera? Well, it will over the short term. But uh, I think the Chinese are probably up to the game. I mean, just as an example, an analogy, an analogy doesn't prove anything, but it's something worth considering. When the Chinese were shut out of the space station, uh, you know, for, you know, charges that they were competing unfairly, stealing, blah, 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 all, all, the, all the classical tropes, they went on. And they just built their own space station, and and then to top it off, they sent you know uh, uh, a vehicle to the far side of the moon, and they landed a rover on Mars in a single shot, something which no other country has ever done. So I think over the long term, anytime you shut China out of a technological field, it will simply develop its own capacity. And next, well, I think it will be the other countries that will be scrambling to try and get back in and have good relations. Hi, KJ. Thanks for joining it. It's Malik here. Um, Jamal mentioned it, the BRI, the um, Belt and Road Initiative. Can you talk about that? So we know that particularly the it's kind of like an ambitious plan to essentially just develop two new trade routes connecting China with the rest of the world. Now, the U.S. seems to be suggesting that this is part of an imperialistic project. Um, can you talk about that? Well, you know, is it really an imperialist project or is it a way for struggling nations to benefit from leaving the Western sphere of influence? Well, I think you really, really have to redefine the term imperialist. <laughs> right. I mean, you got to break it almost, right? 
to destroy it. Yes, as far as I'm concerned, you know, doing trade with another country is not imperialism. And helping a country build its critical infrastructure by giving them low-cost loans and writing those loans off if necessary, how does that constitute imperialism? I mean, we're talking about the construction of ports, of transportation, of electricity, of water plants, just fundamental, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure that a country needs to develop. What China is trying to do is it's showing that, look, we develop by developing our infrastructure. China thinks about 50%. Uh, of its annual GDP into building infrastructure. And they're saying, look, you do the same and you can also develop the way we did and we'll help you. And it's giving them much, much better loans than, for example, the IMF and the World Bank, which are forms of neocolonialism. It's not interfering the country's internal politics. It's not making any demands. It's giving them low-cost loans uh, and and more often than not, it's writing these loans off when the countries run into trouble. And then to top it off, it's only a very, very small percentage of the loans that uh, countries in general have taken out. You know, I think it's about 10%. So anytime people throw out the word debt trap or debt trap diplomacy, they forget the other 90% of the, you know, the, 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 the loans that these countries have. Those are the things that are destroying these countries, not the Chinese loans. The Chinese support is actually helping them. And we see this on the ground. The countries are more than happy to have Chinese support. Yeah. And it's interesting that you actually say that because many people are comparing the initiative to um, the Marshall Plan. Uh, The Marshall Plan was actually what President Truman signed into law. It was the Economic Recovery Act or something of the 1940 or so. But the whole purpose of that plan was to provide economic assistance to restore the economic infrastructure of post-war Europe. And we ended up, it was about $13 or so that we invested in those Western European countries. So... That's a similarity, and there was a reason, of course, the U.S. justified, but, you know, for the U.S., you know, to say that it's imperialistic <laughs> for China to do a simple, you know, a similar thing, it just speaks more to the hypocrisy um, in U.S., in our U.S. foreign relations, particularly on the U.S. side. So you made a very good point with that. Thank you. I absolutely agree. And, you know, once again, you know, the Marshall Plan, uh, you know, benefited Europe. Um, this is, you know, this is multi of the Marshall Plan. It's much, much bigger. The sums are enormous. Uh, And the other thing is, you know, the U.S. was stationing troops all over Europe, all over the world, you know, uh, uh, to this day, you know, uh, what, seven, eight hundred bases around the world. Chinese don't have any bases around the world. They have one in Djibouti, you know, which is largely related to preventing piracy and you know, uh, five other countries have bases in Djibouti, including Japan, which is which is not even supposed to have uh, a military. So I think that's the extent of you know Chinese quote unquote imperialism. It, you know, there's there's no substance to it. Well, China has basically said that even though they want to increase the military and everything else, what they don't want to do is take on this kind of um, hegemonic control. Meaning, our objective is not to be the U.S. when we as we grow and get bigger. But on some level, wouldn't they have to? I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that that's the objective that they're trying to go for, but wouldn't almost by definition, the competition that's going to take place 
among world powers that is clearly taking place right now, with China being one of those world powers. And even this kind of thing of we're increasing our military, they're not doing this willy-nilly. They're doing this because they feel like this is necessary in order for them to accomplish the objectives that they want to, which is basically exponential or um, economic expansion or economic growth. And I agree with you. It's not seems it doesn't seem like they're trying to do this through militaristic means. It seems like they're trying to do this through win-win relationships and business. But the fact that right now Russia is embroiled in the war in Ukraine doesn't it kind of I don't know the ghost of Christmas future on some level of trying to get so involved in Taiwan. Meaning Taiwan for China is something that they are not willing to separate from, and because they're not willing to separate from, it creates an ideal area of destabilization, meaning in the same way that Ukraine was basically used for destabilization, well, Taiwan is also on the marquee for it. They've said, we will militarily defend Taiwan if necessary, and we will not allow foreign actors to basically do anything that is going to decouple our ability for bringing Taiwan into the fold under this one China policy, which makes it ripe for going after. If Ukraine was that way, where the U.S. could turn around and say, okay, Russia has done this thing. They've invaded this country for no reason at all. Just Putin's a bad man. And we're going to get Europe to jump in on sanctions with it and everything else, despite the fact that these things hurt Europe. Wouldn't China be something similar on that, where they would get Europe to say, okay, we can't believe that China invaded Taiwan. Now we're going to put sanctions on it. We're going to injure ourselves further for this particular issue, which on some level tries to decouple China from the rest of Europe. And the argument would be made to try to decouple China from other countries that benefit from Belt and Road. Doesn't that, isn't that something that China has to be focusing on as a real potential outcome? I think you're absolutely correct. And from a realist standpoint, yes, uh, as you develop, you're going to run into competitors. And it's clear that the U.S. has no compunctions about using any means that at its disposal to prevent China's rise. I mean, the semiconductor ban is just one example where essentially your tech cannot develop. We're going to do everything we can to destroy your tech. Uh, which will destroy your economy, which will keep you from developing. The U.S. has actually given these five no's or five assurances that it would not do that. It would not get in the way of Chinese development. But clearly those assurances are not worth the paper that they're written on. And so then China does face the dilemma. So what is China's response? You know, it's hard to predict the future. Clearly they are improving and upgrading their military, but certainly they do not want a kinetic war. Their focus is on developing uh, a socialist country that, uh, you know, has quality development, sustainable development, equal development for everybody. That is not served by going to war. And so if I, you know, were to give you a little example, I'd say it's a little bit like China's approach is like a, a martial artist or even like a Tai Chi master is that they're not aggressive, they're not belligerent. But they want to create within themselves the capacity, the strength, the rootedness, and the balance so that if anything comes their way, they don't have to react aggressively. They're strong enough to repel it. But at the same time, they don't have an overt and aggressive uh, viewpoint towards the world. I'll give you another analogy. In Chinese medicine, Chinese medicine does not have a germ theory. It doesn't believe that uh, the body fails or becomes unhealthy because it's invaded. They believe that the body uh, becomes unhealthy when it is internally not well balanced. And I think the the 20th Party Congress is an attempt to uh, recover balance, especially in terms of economic development and wealth uh, for its own self. 
Um, last point. What came out of that, by the way, before we close it? Um, what came out of the conference itself? Did anything special come out of it? Did anything unique? Was there any surprises that came from it? I don't think there were any surprises. Uh, I think it was pretty much, uh, you know, kind of an evaluation of the work they've done so far and then a promise to continue to do the work. You know, if we kind of look back on the generations of the Chinese uh, leadership, you know, uh, Mao was the person who, you know, created the revolution, was the person who opened up the country and developed it and brought in this pragmatic market socialism. Jiang Zemin brought in the three represents, which was like creating a big tent for everybody rather than having class enemies. And then Hu Jintao talked about scientific development, which is essentially we're going to develop a scientific socialism, balanced and humanitarian and serves answers. And Xi Jinping's approach is a continuation of that. But they are going to continue the second promise of their centenary goals, which is to build uh, a you know, uh, they've already built what they consider to be a moderately prosperous uh, uh, society, and now what they want to uh, create is a modern socialist country that is prosperous, strong, democratic, culturally advanced, and harmonious. Well, let me ask you this, though. There's an article that came out in RT that I, I look personally, I find fascinating. It says, China's approaching a turning point in its history. Will Beijing join Russia to confront the West or keep its powder dry? And you made the point that in the speech, he was more vague. It was more diffuse in regards to any kind of talk about geopolitical changes and everything else. It was more insulated to the country itself. But will China do that? I mean, it's a fascinating question. I mean, it, it, it almost like accepts the world as the world is, like you said, a realist view of the world, where this kind of organization between China and Russia themselves created fulcrum that the world fundamentally changes as a result of the power between the two countries being merged or the very least working together in closer tandem. Do you think this relationship would get more stark or more overt in the time, let's say, in the coming year or more? I think it will. I think it has to. I think it's being forced in that direction. And I'll add another element to that. I think well, Iran will also join up with uh, Russia, China, uh, and, uh, uh, and the three countries together will kind of form a Invitational center within the central Eurasian mass, which I think will fundamentally change uh, the course of, uh, you know, development of uh, the majority of countries of the global south. It will create an attraction or gravitational pull, which will allow multipolarity to move forward in, in a fundamentally different way than the extractive and hegemonic and uh, conflictual method that the U.S. has imposed on the world since the end of World War II. Yeah, that's a good point. It seems that the world is changing in regards to where control is located. And look, a lot of that, I would argue, is coming directly from the war itself. Meaning, if you're NATO, and if you're the United States and the West, and you're putting all of this economic and political and weaponry, and you can't change, let's say, the reality on the ground, despite your power that you're supposed to have at your disposal, well, it looks bad. It doesn't just look bad. From the standpoint of other countries that may not necessarily want the hegemonic control in and of itself, they look at it as a way potentially out. KJ, thank you for this, man. I really appreciate it. KJ Noah is a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He is a contributor to the book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, once censored by Amazon. It is now available at iacenter.org. And, you know, one of the weirdest things for this, it comes to me as, okay, if this is not going well with you and Ukraine, why are you pushing it further in Taiwan? And it's like, 
because there needs to be some kind of rational analysis that says, okay, Europe is taking a hit. Our energy prices are going through the roof. We're talking about losing all of these jobs. Powell is deciding to make more constraints on this while simultaneously not necessarily be in control of the device that's creating it in the first place. But let's get involved with China too. That seems so backwards to me. I mean, even if you go with the logic that, okay, in 10 years, China's out the barn. We can't do anything with it militarily, economically, and everything else. So anything we need to do, we need to do it now. In the same way that we could sever relationships using Ukraine as a pretext going to Europe, say, hey, you don't want to be in organization with Russia after this, right? You need to cut your ties, right? Okay, we're going to bomb Gazprom so you can't go back. And we're going to try to bomb this other thing so you can't even get energy from that. And then you see Taiwan, and you're like, okay, but they're creating these relationships with China. They're creating these relationships with all of these other countries that were supposed to be vassal states for us, or at the very least, we're supposed to have influence on. We need to end this sooner rather than later, which just comes across as so um, risky. It's like brinksmanship on steroids, that you believe that, okay, in 10 years, we're going to lose a certain hegemonic control in an economic and political sphere, so we need to do something now about it. I don't know. It's just, it seems harebrained. And then you get Europe to go along with you where Europe says, okay, yeah, we need to sanction China now. What, what the hell is wrong with you, you guys? I mean, we're, we're leading everybody to destruction. <laughs> no, yeah, destruction, but it's but, our, yeah. I mean, it's almost like to our best interest, but not to theirs. Right. And at, at a certain point where it becomes obvious, this isn't working well with Ukraine. Will Europe take that step forward? Meaning if anything happens in Taiwan, is Europe going to say, okay, well, the U.S. says we need to now sanction China. Are we going to do that? I don't know. Well, they do the things to serve in their own best interest. That's the and question. Just following the U.S. And I get a feeling they're going to follow the U.S. and <laughs> hell in a handbasket. But you heard the music. I want to thank our engineer, our producers. I want to thank Reese Everson, Malik Abdul. My name is Jamal Thomas. Fault lines. We'll see you bright and early in the morning. Have a good one, guys. Fault lines.